This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. So a little while ago, probably over a month ago, I sat down with Dan Loria in New York City at the World Famous Players Club, um, which in and of itself was an experience to sit with Dan and talk with him there because Dan had last been there um, a while ago with his old friends, Charles Durning. Um, I think Peter Falk and Jack Lugman have been there too. Um, you know, this was, this brought back so many memories for him to be at the players and that just unleashed so many things in the conversation that we had on top of it. It's just a blast to talk to any of the folks we talk to face to face, but with somebody like Dan who takes on the persona of the people he's talking about and really acts it out for you, it was a blast to sit and do this in person. Dan, of course, is best known, probably, as the father in the Wonder Years. And then has gone on to star in God. I mean, you know, he's had guest roles in eight in every TV show made since, you know, 1980, pretty much. Um, he's done a ton of theater. Broadway, where he was Vince Lombardi in Lombardi. Uh, that was a show that was directed uh, by the guy who ended up directing Hamilton. Um, and, uh, you know, Dan's just had a prodigious career in the theater and in TV. So, uh, you know, he's on Shameless, This Is Us. God, I'm forgetting. Uh, I'm forgetting more than I'm remembering. And, yeah, if you check him out on IMDb, if you don't, you'll, you'll know his face if you don't know the name. But um, Dan is also a Vietnam, was also a Vietnam-era Marine infantry officer. And uh, I won't give away too many spoilers here. Um, I'll kind of sum things up maybe at the end of the episode. But what an amazing conversation with just an exceptionally fun veteran artist to talk to. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that for right now. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Dan Loria's Profile in Havoc.
right, Dan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I would take two. <laughs> take two, right. <laughs> you remembered your card. I remember my card. Just one of those things. Yeah. Um, God, you know, the first thing is I think we, we just got to start at the beginning with you because there's so much to go through. I mean, what were you at first as a kid, were you an actor? Were you into theater? No, no, not at all. No, I was just a, a jock. I went to, I, I only got to college because of football. I had no grades. I, <laughs> I, I don't even think I graduated last. I was beyond last out of my high school. And uh, where were you? Where were you born? Long Island, New York. And oh, we, wow. Lindenhurst. We were the number one in population in Suffolk County when I went there, and. We won the Rutgers Cup three years in a row for the best football team in New York State, and you know. So, uh, what was I, your position? What'd you play? Uh, in high school, I was a center and a linebacker, and in college, I was middle linebacker. You know? And where'd you go to college? I went to undergraduate at Southern Connecticut and uh, graduate school at UConn. So, before we get to grad school, what was the plan going into college? Oh, I just wanted to play football and coach football. That's all I ever wanted to do. And, uh, but I was very fortunate. I was such an idiot in high school because I, I never read anything. You know, I just got by because everybody liked me and the teachers, you know, knew I was just going to coach, probably be a gym teacher. And then when I got into college, uh, the first semester, I failed out. And the football coach got me back in on uh, probation. And he, our defensive coach, Coach Carbone, great guy, he really thought I could be a good coach because I would call the plays and all that stuff, the defensive plays. So he said, but you got to graduate. And I had never read a book in my life. And I read for the first time, and I loved it. And my first semester on probation, I did – Okay, well enough to stay in. But then from then on, all through college, all through graduate school, I was always on a dean's list. And I never am without a book. What was your major? Uh, At college, initially, it was U.S. history. Okay. I never was a gym teacher. Everybody thought I was. (laughs) Because I loved the stories. And I eventually had a minor in philosophy and a minor. I ended up with a minor in theater because I stayed an extra semester and just took theater courses. And so when, what did the writing, what did the reading trigger for you? Did that trigger deeper appreciation of history? Did it trigger theater? Oh, what did it do? A a deeper appreciation of everything, you know, I, but again, I was lucky. There were so many young people in, in high school who worked very hard to get grades and they found college just harder, whereas I never did anything. And then when I read, for some reason, it just stays in my mind. So like a lot of people, when I'm doing a role, they think I have a photographic memory, but I, I really don't. I have an autographic memory. If I say it aloud, I remember it. Really? Yeah. The last couple of years, it's been hotter, harder. It doesn't get easier, but forever I could read something aloud and then go on stage and say it. Really? Yeah. So I know we're getting ahead of ourselves and we'll go back in time in a second. Yeah. 
do you like a lot of rehearsal then, or do I you hate not rehearsal? You don't need that much. Yeah, I'm like Charlie Durning. Yeah, I'm just the opposite. Uh, I, I I don't like a lot of rehearsal. Once I know my lines, I, I'm to me rehearsal. You're always one man short. That's the audience. And uh, and and of course, Jack Klugman, who I was close to, and Peter Falk, they were just the opposite. They could they would rather rehearse than actually do the produ- uh, play, to do the performance. They loved rehearsal. Peter would drive you crazy. Dan, is it funny if I move the glass here, or should I move it over here? Pete, just move the glass, will you? You know. And Charlie Durning was like, we, we you know, Peter once said, he goes, you know, uh. He says, you are just like Charlie, saying, go and you're gone. You just take off. Nothing bothers you. Everything bothers me, you know? That's strange, because he was such a gregarious guy, you would think he would love to be in front of the audience and miss that more. He loved, both Peter and Charlie love finding things and working things. Charlie and I were, we just wanted to get on stage and do, we'll find it on the stage. You know what I mean? You yeah. can, I, some of the greatest moments I've had on stage happen just then. Yeah. And if you know your lines and you're prepared, nothing throws you, you know. We just, Charlie and I always had fun. Peter, Peter Falk and Jack Klugman, I don't think they ever had fun. I remember Charlie saying to Peter Falk, Pete, if acting was that hard, Dan and I wouldn't do it. That's so weird because yeah. Peter Falk seems like he's always having fun and oh, flying by the seat of his Peter, pants. Peter and Jack were the two hardest working actors I've ever worked with. They, you know, Jack, he, they told him he'd never speak again. And two years later, he was on stage. He talked like this, but you heard every word. It was enunciated and he had to be Mike. Oh. But Jack would, Dan, I, I, we, we're not getting them this moment. We, there's more here. There's more here. Jack, okay, fine, great. Yeah, we'll find it. Okay, we're going to get back into that in a second. I, I, I had to take that sidebar because there's no way I could let that lie. I want to hear a lot more about this because I've got some questions. But when you start, what were you reading when you got into reading in college? What well, stuff I, were you I reading? I read what I was told to read to pass the classes, but okay. I remember a um, great teacher, uh, Dr. Koch. We, we all, regardless of what your major was, you had to take art history and music history. You know, one of those okay. big, yeah, sure, 150 people in a class. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. So in the final exam, all the football players they're cheating off me you know (laughs) so when it was over we're walking out and dr koch said um mr lauria come over here i said yeah what's up (laughs) he said i notice all the jocks are cheating off you i said ah dr koch they're gonna be gym teachers you know he goes no 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 he was a great guy he said no no i understand but i think i want you to take some art history courses. I want you to take my courses. And I said, oh, you know, it's part of history, so it counts towards my major. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And I, to this day, I, whenever I'm on a road, I love to go to museums or places like this, the Players Club, and look at the paintings and how they're painted and who painted them. And, but that was a great teacher, you know. Was that your first exposure to fine art? And to art yeah, in general? Yeah, I never, you know, I always like to draw a little bit, but I, I never studied it or anything. But I got into reading those kind of books, you know, and then... 
But I mean, that's all school books. That's all yeah. like nonfiction school books. You were getting into that. Yeah. It wasn't like you were reading like fascinating literature or even Mickey Spillane. You're like you're no, reading no. like no. You're, you're reading eggheady stuff, and you were yeah. really enjoying it. Yeah, even in high school, when I, I remember Doctor Hurd, uh, he was the English teacher, great guy, and you know, uh, he said write a composition about what you did over the summer. And I wrote about the Martians taking over the world, and only the mayor of New York got away with anything because he said, "Okay, you want to try to run the subway? You do it." And after a week of trying to run the subway, they gave it back. I had never been on the subway, <laughs> and Doctor Hurd gave me an A. You know, and then I wrote I another. The, the next one, he said, "You just keep writing what you want." And I wrote the next one, he gave me an A, and then he wrote, an, uh, then I wrote one, and he gave me a C. And I said, "How come this one's a C?" He said, "You didn't make me laugh." You want to go out there, you better be good. And that was kind of an introduction into, you know, fictional writing or creating things. But again, you have a, a good teacher. Most teachers would have failed you for that. And I was such a wise ass, I didn't care. You know, you're not going to fail me. You can't punish me. We got a game Saturday. I played four sports. Every time they went, I would get paddled by, you know, the athletic director. Yeah, well, talk about that. When they put you on probation or they kicked you out and then put you, brought you back on probation. In college. In college. Yeah. Did you think about just giving up? Did you think about, hey, maybe college just isn't for me? I, you know, I thought about it. I thought about it because um, I was had already signed up for PLC for the Marine Corps. It's like ROTC for the Marines. So I was thinking, well, maybe I'll just go into service and do it when I came out. But then I read. I said, well, let me see if I can get through, get off probation. And it was just, I was just so lucky, you know, that I still love to read. I've, I've always had, one thing I, I don't like L.A. that much, but one thing I like about L.A. is, uh when you're in a car, you have audio books. Yeah. 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 I mean, Found I listen time. to music once in a while, but I'd rather listen to a book. 100%. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, I usually have, I still physically have a book that I'm reading, and I have an audio book in the car. And Same book or not usually? No, usually two different okay. books. You know, and some of them are, uh, I like a lot of the history books, so they're reality-based. But um, so, you, did you ever really get into fiction, or were you always not not as much? But um, I kind of uh, like the historical writers who, well, I, they fictionalize a true event. Oh, yeah, you know, like Gore Vidal yeah. writing about Burr. Sure, he doesn't know what was said in that room. But we know they were in that room, and right. he makes. A, I kind of enjoy those. See their perspective on uh, on the past. And, oh, we'll talk about that more than when we get to the Steve Allen stuff. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, that seems like a theme with yeah. you, right? Yeah. And then uh, what's the latest one? Uh, oh, Larson's uh, "Devil in the White City." Right. Great book. I mean, uh, right. not the arch architecture that was and all the planning that went on on the Chicago uh, World's Fair. And at the same time, Chicago has its most infamous uh, serial killer. And I, well, I found that fascinating. Now, that is, yeah, I don't know how much is made up or how much is fact, but there's a lot of both, you know. What did you see as a second order effect of getting into reading? Did it start to? I mean, you say it. it oh, I was forced. I, it was life. either greed or right. Go in the service. Did Did you start to notice though that outside of school, 
your interest started to change because of the reading or did that not really happen yet? Um, not, not so much. It made me, uh, I, I think I had a, a premonition of that if I read. Maybe I was a little prescient in seeing that if I read, I would be okay because I could read books, theory books on football. And it it was like reading a chess book. It's not yeah, yeah, right. what people think. Right. You know, everything is checks and balances on opposing teams and stuff. Right. And I was always good at that. So I had a feeling that, well... Okay, I got to get through this math course. Let me read about it. And all of a sudden, oh, algebra wasn't that hard. You know, in high school, I couldn't, I barely got through, you know, but oh, but once you read it and you're looking. So I was very lucky in that I still love to read, you know. So you dropped a breadcrumb earlier that I want to pick up now. Um, you mentioned, oh, yeah, I was about to do PLC for the Marine Corps. Yeah. What year was this? I was in college. I graduated high school in 65, and I went to Western Kentucky, but I got hurt. And then in 67 uh, to 70, no, 66 to 70, I was at Southern. Okay. So after my freshman year, I signed up for PLC. And where did that come from? Why, why did you get the Oh, uh, Marty White. Marines? He was uh, one of the captains of the football team. He was in PLC. And, and you just thought it was cool? Yeah, I mean, my, you know, I grew up, all our fathers were World War II vets. So, you know, during the 60s, you had to take a stand. Nobody was, not like today, everybody was, you were either against it or for it. And then there were people like me where my father always instilled in us that, you know, a country right or wrong, you know, you can be, you could be against what they're doing and you still would serve. You know, he was American Legion. Of course. Yeah. You know, all that stuff. So yeah. everybody from my high school, you either, when they graduated, you went into service and then to college or you went to college and then the service. I, we all did. Really? Yeah, especially Italians. Interesting. But not everybody was joining the Marines. No, my father was in the Army, so I figured I had to one-up him, so I joined him. <laughs> now, were you, now, just to be clear at this time, because I'm fuzzy on how things were when there was a draft, were you going to get drafted regardless? No, at no, some point? my number was like 247 or something. Is that high? Was that like you never oh, yeah. got drafted? You would, I never would have got drafted. Really? They never came anywhere near that number. Wow. But I was in the PLC, and I, you know, and that was uh, three years because I was an officer, and uh, my company commander was. Uh, he was Captain Fulford then, but he became four-star General Fulford. He was in the room when Colin Powell said, you break it, you own it. He was in charge of all Marines in Desert Storm, and we only lost eight Marines through that whole conflict. He was He's one of the finest men I've ever known. Did you know? you, are you still in touch with him? Oh, yeah. He comes to all the place. Really? Yeah, my first sergeant did. He passed away, Sergeant Barrable, who may have been the funniest man I've ever met. And, you know, my platoon sergeant, Sergeant Smith and Sergeant Robinson, I still see them, call them, talk to them. Yeah. I'm jumping ahead of myself, but since you brought it up, um, I was talking with uh, Dave Meadows, who's an actor now out in L.A. doing TV shows and all that. He was a SEAL, and he said one of the biggest problems he has is or, – or I don't want to put words in his mouth. But basically, he was like one of the biggest struggles he has is that he'll always be a SEAL, yeah. and on stage – 
He's like, if other seals come to see me, it's hard for me to play against that. Like I still, he still, I'm putting words in his mouth a little bit. He's like, I still feel that pull. Was there any of that with you when you're seeing your fellow Marines out there that you're like, oh, yeah. hey, it's hard for me to, I, I got to still be the Marine that I was with them and I can't follow well, this the, role as much. Not so much the Marine I was with them, but you know, you just, I don't know. It's the greatest pat on the back you could get is buddies from 40 years ago are coming and saying, Hey, Lieutenant, you know, still call me Lieutenant. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's just, I remember, uh, doing a play with Charles Durning, who was the youngest man to land at North. Yeah. And he's, I have a picture somewhere of it. And he is sitting outside the Westport playhouse in Connecticut Mm. with my first Sergeant top Barabo. And they were both telling stories about me. I'm, you know, oh my and you could God. just see the two of them laughing, you know, and then Charlie says, oh, it's good to know you were always an asshole. <laughs> I said, what a top. You know? Well, let's talk about when you got into the Marines. What was it? What was it like when you first showed up? So wait, PLC, you correct me if I'm wrong. You do a summer, then you go back to school and then you do another, another summer, summer, right? Yeah. So the summer before my sophomore year and the summer before my senior year. Uh, I would go to boot camp, right. and uh, which was great because I would come out of boot camp, I would be a little light in weight, but I was in so much better shape than anybody else. Sure, and the two a day football practice was like nothing, you know. And, and again, I, I, nobody was luckier. We had orders to go to Vietnam, but they were pulling the Marines out. So I was on Okinawa ninety uh, percent of the time. Now we would always have to get on ready, go on ship, get ready to land, and then we'd never go. And then the last couple of weeks, uh, I was overseas. They sent uh, Vietnamese troops to uh, Okinawa to learn how to call in the fire because Marine pilots were still flying out of uh, Thailand. And, you know, you don't just call a plane and say fly over and drop something. you got to get wind direction and all yeah, that sure. stuff. And then he said, do you want to go back in? So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll extend. And I went back in. But two weeks after we were there, we something was going on. You could hear the fire. We took some shells. And... I guess somebody said there are Marines there. And I, I'm i just assuming somebody in the Army said, what are Marines there? They didn't want the people back here to think they were redeploying them. So they got us out right away. So I served with all these guys, you know, like uh, General Fulford, who, you know, was there for two tours, was going back on his third. Wow. And, and I had literally two weeks in Vietnam. And I always try to make that clear because I don't want people, they always say, oh, you're a Vietnam veteran. Well, yeah, I am. But right. Right. I didn't go through what most of these, I, again, I lucked out. So, Okay, let's, let's talk about that then because um, that's interesting. When you, well, first, I wanted to back up to when you actually went to PLC. When you actually first went to, to boot camp, was it a true culture shock for you? Did you were you already you already did you already know what you're to expect? What was the experience like for you? I I again I had some great advice. They said just keep your sense of humor. Uh, you know. Yeah. And uh, I met my real good friend Joe Pantliano, not the actor. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, Joe was killed, but. Um, he was like 6'6", six, six, and they called him Candidate Lurch. 
And of course, I would always laugh, and the two of us were in the dumpster with toothbrushes, cleaning things and stuff. But uh, it was, uh, you, you just had to keep your sense. The physical stuff is what destroys most guys, but I was a jock. I yeah. loved it. Yeah. You know, I loved uh, going over the obstacle course and all yeah. that. And, you know, if you got any leadership abilities, you would. Yeah, we were team players, so we we would right. grab the guys who had hard times. And after hours, come on, let's go out on the course. We'll help you get over it. We'll teach you how to swing on a bar. And so you know, and and you could tell the DIs they knew, they appreciated it. So when you actually commissioned, what did you commission as? What was your uh, branch? Oh, a second lieutenant, and but, I was O three uh, infantry. Infantry, okay. Yeah. I don't think I was smart enough for anything else. Well, I mean, you know, with the Marines, it's like infantry is the hardest one to get because they all want to be infantry. So it's like everybody goes that direction. Yeah. Was that the case for you guys? Yeah. I, you know, and um, when you're at the uh, Quantico and you're going through the school and they ask you, they give you that dream sheet, where do you want to go? 90%, they give you three choices. 90% of us put Vietnam, Vietnam, Vietnam. I mean, why would you be a Marine and not, you know? It was just the thing to do. And, of course, when I was in, and General Fulford always talks about this, it was the hardest year for him, I think partly because he wasn't in combat. He was a combat Marine. But it was when we were having all the racial conflicts. In the States or in the Marines? In the Marines. You know, with the power checks and all that stuff. Tell me about that. No. Well, it, it was a lot of, uh, you, you, you got to remember that <clears throat> a lot of the Marines, some judge said four years in the Marines or two years in jail, and they took the Marine Corps. So we had a lot of minorities. and um, But I, I was... Uh, I was always in, involved with Big Brother and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of conflict on Okinawa. And I, I would teach black history and do all this stuff. And and I got to tell you, Captain Fulford said, I don't know how you're doing it, but you're calming things down. So they were very nice to me. And Sergeant Robinson, black guy, he was uh, he was great. So there was a potential riot and it was the opposite of what most people would think. The whites were rioting and the blacks were all in the mess hall. What were the whites rioting about? They were tired of power checks and all this other what, stuff. What is it? I don't know. You know what that you know, is. What's a power check? Tapping in the uh, handshakes and slope the lines as you're going through the mess hall, things like that. So I was instrumental in putting it down. And, but again, Luck was on my side because everybody left Okinawa and went to Camp Lejeune, and I went to Quantico to play football and to teach human relations. Remember, I'm okay, you're okay. <laughs> I had to teach that at the basic school the, with the officers. I had to teach generals, I'm okay, you're okay. So you, is this because you re-enlisted? So now they were, this was your follow-on assignment was to go to no, Quantico? No, this was my last year in the service. I, what, who were you playing football for at Quantico? Quantico. Like, I was on the last team that uh, – the last service team to play a college schedule, the Knights. So, so wait, the Marine Corps used to field a football team sure, that would started go – Started by Smedley Darlington Butler. Are you kidding? 
And they would play against the academies, and they would play against other colleges. They'd play or who against they against academies, but whenever you saw a major team back then, like Maryland University, of Maryland, uh-huh. and you see they had a bye week, they were playing the Marine Corps. So we were good. It was all guys who were hoping their senior year they'd get drafted and they got hurt. So they joined the Marine Corps just to get on a football team and play another college schedule. Did you guys usually win? Oh, yeah. I think we were 7-2. and two. No. We were – we played 8-2. and two. Holy criminy. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. So what was your aspiration at that point? You had extended – in the Marine Corps well, at that point, but, right? Well, I not extended. I extended. Uh, I didn't re-enlist. I extended while I was overseas. Okay. In other words, instead of going home, I said I would stay another three months okay. to go. But I ended up only staying another two weeks. Gotcha. Gotcha. And okay. then they said, okay, you're going to go back to Quantico. You're going to teach. Uh, you're going to play football. And after football, you're going to teach this human relations course. And this was what, 72, 73? 72. 72. Got out in 73. So, I mean, how did you feel at that point as you and as a Marine, you'd been to Vietnam for two weeks. Did you feel like that itch had been scratched or were you like, hey, I kind of missed out on what I've been training for this whole time? Or no, did you I, care? I, you know, I'm, uh, you know, in the Marine Corps, you, you don't just ride the wave. You know, you, you're a Marine, you, you step in, uh, you know, if I was in combat, I'm would have done my job. I was on Okinawa where there was a lot of racial tension. I didn't sit back. And right. General Fulford always knew I was always volunteering for, mm-hmm. no, no, I'll take care of that. No, let me, you know, and when some young guy got in trouble, usually a minority, I said, I'll take him in my platoon. We had our own name, the misfits, you know, and I would try to make it into something positive, which all, you know, I think was very theatrical, you know, and I would try to make him, you know, you you know, you you know what it was to be the, on a night watch and you're walking through the barracks. We had a stick like a, like a cop's baton. Yeah. We had carved on it the man. So <laughs> you walked around. You know, nobody stole anything from Mark. <laughs> there were a few guys with black eyes, and cracked heads on Okinawa. You know, so we we did a lot of stuff. And again, my first sergeant, top arable, my sergeant yeah. Robinson. You know. Did you? But did you feel? I, I guess what I'm getting at is, though, did you, was there any party that felt? Did you feel fulfilled as a Marine? Did you feel like, hey, I did my duty. I'm totally comfortable leaving the Marines. Or did you feel like there was still meat on the bone? Well, it, uh, when I get left for uh, overseas and I got to Quantico after playing football, I I still felt an obligation to um, help with the racial conflict. Really? Wow. So I started uh, – I'm serious. His name was Colonel Schultz. Uh, he was the head of the uh, uh, basic school. And he called me in the office, and he saw what I was teaching there, and he said, I, wa- I want to make general, you're going to help me. I want a program that gets the Marine Corps involved with the civilian community, which was totally a no-no back then with all the riots. Like We weren't even allowed to go into Washington, D.C. Sure. Because you could tell we were Marines by our hair. Yeah. Couldn't wear uniforms there. So I said, okay. And I, 
again, it was uh, Sawyer Robinson who followed me. Um, he came in and said, I saw a commercial for Big Brother. So we started a program where Marines took little brothers out of Washington, D.C. and brought them to the base. And Colonel Schultz couldn't have been better. Man, he laid out everything. Barbecues, rides on tanks for these kids. Well, it caught on, and then the Navy did. We had over 1,400 servicemen as big brothers. And I was, in 1972, I was the National Big Brother of the Year. And my first little brother, he ended up working on the Wonder Years as a grip. He just retired. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. So I've had five. I'm on my fifth one. So, but that was all part of, again, as a Marine, you know, you don't just let things drop. I still work with the DAV. I still work with the National Veterans Foundation. And it's not because I have to. It's just something ingrained and in you're a Marine. You step up. So it, it seems like, I mean, what I'm hearing is, I mean, the racial tensions and the, and the problems that seems like that was the front burner concern for you. For me, yeah. Because it's like, it, I mean, I'm Vietnam not hearing... was winding down. Right, yeah. right. So, because, and I guess this is what I'm juxtaposing it with in my mind is, you know, there's a lot of guys now, combat arms guys, right? Did active duty four years, six years, something like that. Their rotation never came up. They never got to deploy. The wars were winding down. And there's a lot of stuff in the community about, regret and like, Hey, I trained up for all this. I never got in the fight a little bit of shame, a little bit of regret, a little bit of remorse, but it doesn't seem like you had that at all. It doesn't seem like that was a th you, like you felt very fulfilled and satisfied. Like you had a mission in front of you, you did it and you felt very filled yeah, with I, what I, you did. I think, um, if I just let everything drop, just played football and yeah. got out and never, stayed involved with the Marines, I, I would have regretted it. Interesting. But now, you know, matter of fact, uh, the first little br uh, big brother on the base was Colonel Schultz. And then the second one was Ollie North. He was my, come yeah, his, his little brother, Andre. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, I hadn't heard from him forever, but then, you know, I was doing Lombardi on Broadway and, I get a note from him and a photo of him at Andre's wedding. Oh, come on. Yeah. So, you know, regardless of politics, you know, yeah, I think sure. I, uh, General Fulford would always, he said, the only liberal in the Marine Corps, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then Ollie North was my company commander. I mean, you can't be more right-wing than that. But with the, the bond we had yeah. was we're Marines. You do your duty. Yep. Regardless of your personal feelings, you do your duty, you know. Um. When your time was ending with the Marines, first, did you consider re-upping and, 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 and staying in? No, I in? knew I wanted to be an actor. I, I had started acting before I left college. Because of the theater degree at yeah, that point? Yeah, and okay. I, I, you know, I, I had done a couple of plays. I even did something at Long Wharf. I filled in for somebody. And then I went into service, and I couldn't wait to get back to the theater. You were biding time to get back to the theater yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And I had a great, t you know, uh, Constance Welsh who started the Yale Dramat was at Southern Connecticut. And uh, she'd always say, you're like my, fr my student, Jimmy. And that was, um, um, uh, James, uh, he did give him hell of Harry Whitmore was one of her students. And he had 
before World War II, he had studied acting with her, and then he went into Marines. And she had always sent him plays, and she sent me plays while I was. Did she really? Yeah, yeah. So when I got out, I went to UConn for playwriting, and uh, I think the last play she saw was uh, a college production of View from the Bridge that I was in. So she was so, a good lady. So let's talk about that. Those pivotal moments when you first. What was the first acting class you took? What was the first exposure to theater you had? I always uh, loved watching old movies. Okay. When I was younger, I had an aunt that lived my aunt Adele, and I'd be eating dinner, and she'd go, go to sleep. And I'd go to sleep like 7 o'clock, and at 1 in the morning, she'd wake me up and go, James Cagney, and we'd watch White Heat or something. She knew all the lines. So I always loved old movies. My friends would always kid me about it. So one day I was... Uh, I was sophomore spring football, and I was telling a joke before practice, and I felt this tap on my shoulder pads, and it was Constance Welsh. She was older, and she had a cane. She said, would you like to be in a play? <laughs> what, what, was she, what was she doing at a football practice, first off? She was just walking from one building to another. Oh, she had nothing. She never she didn't like sports. <laughs> and, she, and I said, you know, I always wanted to do that. And she said, I know. And I said, how would you know? And she said, because I'm the greatest acting teacher in the world. So she was going to do a production of, uh, uh, oh, I forget the Shakespearean play, The Tempest. And she needed a big, ugly guy to play Caliban. So she brings me over to the theater department to a student who was doing A Thousand Clowns a student production, and she said to him, his name was Julian Slushberg, I still see him too, and he said, Julian, you will put this man in your play as a warm-up for my play. And my first role was to play the brother in A Thousand Clowns, the part Martin Balsam won the Academy Award for, Arnold Burns. And then I said, boy, this is, this is better than working. This is fun. <laughs> And then, you know, and, and then after three years in the Marine Corps, I was always right. And I figured, well, if that didn't kill me, acting wouldn't. And wait, wait, so wait, hold on a second. I gotta, I gotta, so when you do A Thousand Clowns, I mean, first off, you're getting lines. There's jokes to be had and all the rest. Did you just fall into it? Was, yeah. there any, was there any work involved in it for you? Was there anything where you were like, oh, I got to really find my rhythm here? And no. like that? It was too easy. It was just a natural fit. I never, I never was a method actor. She wasn't. Yeah. You know, she would always, if you tried to tell her what you were feeling, Miss Welsh would go, I don't care what you're feeling. You didn't pay to get in. I'm the audience. I care about what I'm feeling. And I would say, <laughs> okay. You know? What, what was, can you describe what the attraction was when you did take the stage? I mean, was it being sports. in front of the audience? What, yeah, sports. Okay. You're on a team, you're still in the game. Uh, so when you yeah. came down, I had a chance to go to the University of Iowa as a coach for my master's. And at that point, I said, do I want to stand on the sidelines and coach? Or do I want to stay in the game and act? Wow. So it, to me, there was a great correlation. I, I, I know... Uh, you know, as an actor, I still have so far to go, but I'm still in the game and I'm yeah. still working at it and you're still playing. Whereas coaching, you step aside and you're asking others to do what you wish you could do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think every coach has that thing and every great coach has that thing. And I wish I was out there. I know. Yeah. What to do. Yeah. 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 
of course as an actor you're actually in the game so and you're still a team you know you're still part of a team okay so if a thousand clowns wasn't uh it was kind of a natural fit for you what was it like playing caliban oh they put me in this big gorilla suit with wings and stuff <laughs> i have a picture somewhere it was ridiculous <laughs> but I, I was and but she directed it. it was fun i remember the very first rehearsal because i walked in with all my lines memorized which everybody was shocked and i'm halfway through the monologue and she comes walking down the aisle of the theater and she bangs her cane on the stage and she says mr laria Shakespeare did not grow up in Brooklyn. I suggest you learn those lines again. And I had to go to her to learn the right pronunciation and all that English stuff. You know, but where a thousand clowns was, that was like every one of my uncles. Yeah. Just since we're talking about I, I remember asking her once, because some actors would throw up my friend Bruce Connolly, he was he's still acting and he gets so nervous before a show. And I remember looking at Miss Welsh and say, should I be that nervous? And she said, it's a waste of energy. Don't bother. Wow. Do you get butterflies before never, you go on? Never had stage four. Really? Never. But I mean, even just like, even just like you stress, even just, you know, natural. No, like, what I feel energy. is exactly what I felt before kickoff. Let's get the game going, man. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you know, I want to get out there. That, and I call that anxious. I don't call that butterfly. Butterflies right. are, oh, I don't know. I'll feel, I'm not thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not even thinking about what could go wrong. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. You, know, I, I, you know, as a jock, I want to be the guy up with two outs in the ninth in the tie game and the bases are loaded. I yeah. want to be the guy up. I don't want to be. You like the pressure. Yeah. I, you know, if I'm out in the field, I want them to hit it to me. I, you know, I want to make the play. And you, sometimes, you know, sometimes you'll strike out. Sure, sure, sometimes sure. Sometimes you'll hit a homer. Mm -hmm. you, so you talked about the autographic memory. Was that present back then when you were learning Shakespeare? Did you say it once out loud and you pretty much had it locked in? Yeah, Shakespeare was a little harder, but uh, but with all the natural dialogue, like a thousand clowns, I, yeah, I never had any easy. problem. Okay. Um, were those the what other how many other shows did you do before you went in the Marines? How much more theater was? Oh, there? I did everything at Con. I think I did four more plays: Escurial, <laughs> abstract play, and uh, did you do a couple of other? Oh, they made Miss Welsh made me direct a student production the next year. Of course, and I wouldn't work with any of the women. I was afraid, so I did a. We did the King Mutiny Court Martial, and I had two actors play the two lawyers. And all the other, the rest of the cast were all athletes. And uh, it, was, it was great. It was great. Some of them still actors. But the two actors, they were so frightened because I couldn't direct them as actors. I had to treat them as if we were on a team. I'd be throwing chairs. Get the hell over there. Come in the door now. Why? Because I told you so. You know, it was, it was wow. all that. Wow. But... It, was, it went over so well and even won some award. And Miss Welsh would always say, um, you know, that's what you have to have, that team thing. She said, you could just sense it. We were having so much fun. And the guys were so, they were guys who had never acted before. Some of them were pretty good, you know. And, uh, but you couldn't treat them as, oh, what are you feeling and all that. Yeah. This was, yeah. they were athletes. This is the play. This is how you play it. This is. You know, of course. That, that always yeah. carried over. But she was a great teacher. She was, uh, I remember 
she gave all the males a monologue. And it was terrible. It had every cliche in the world. And nothing looks as dead as the dead. You ever walk the earth in another man's shoes? It was just, uh-huh. I think I got about three lines out. And she banged her cane and says, Mr. Laurier, stop embarrassing yourself. Sit down, you know. And then none of us did very well. And when we were finished, and this was in the days before DVDs, she had a movie projector in the back of the room. And she opened up this curtain. There was a screen. And she showed Tyrone Power doing the same exact words in Razor's Edge. Wow. And he's really good. And she said, the difference between Mr. Power and you is he's an actor. You became critics. And you will never, you will never always have great dialogue. And boy, when I got a job on a soap opera, I always, it was the worst dialogue in the world. And it would be very easy to say, ignore it. But you know what? You went at it, you attacked it. And that was a great lesson to learn. So sometimes, you know, working on, I've worked on some of the worst plays ever. And, but you got to go out there and give it the full shot, you know? Why didn't you want to work with any women? Uh, back then, yeah. because if I wasn't directing, I would love to work with the women. But uh-huh. as a director, I I, I wasn't going to sit there and play that game, be nice and do this. <laughs> I didn't know. You were a savage. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was a jock, you know. I was a Marine. I was like, are you kidding me? You really want me to direct? I said, okay. And then she said it turned out well because some uh, they did uh, Little Women yeah. And they so the women got their own play, and we got our own, but it was fun. We had a great time. Do you think? I mean, it, it's interesting now. I'm, I'm getting a little ahead, but I, I, I can't help but ask this Do you think that playing football, being a jock, doing the Marines, it just seems like that was a huge value add to your craft and to your art? Would you have been the same actor? Would you have had the same talent? Would you have had the same results if you had been doing drama from day one, never gotten into sports, never gone down the I, Marine Corps I, path? I, I don't think so. Because like Charles Durning said, for a veteran, even though I was only in, in a combat era for a couple of weeks, anything beyond 18 was cherry on the cake. Uh, so... You always carry that with you. I'm always, I mean, you know, I hate the business. I think most actors do. Like Charlie Durning said, to be a good actor, your your emotions have to be right at skin level. But to survive the business, you have to have the skin of a rhino. So there's that contradiction. But knowing that there are so many guys who are, never made it back, you know, it just makes you appreciate rehearsal periods and all that other stuff, you know. What was the first professional work that you did as an actor? <laughs> Actually, the first professional thing I did was before I went into service, Miss Welsh was, uh, Arvin Brown was at Long Wharf, and they were doing The Seagull, and somebody got sick, and she said, oh, Dan Laurier can do it. I only had like two days. I learned a part. And I went in and I did it. And then I went to the service. And so I actually that, but the, the, you know, I was one of a few guys who had an equity card before I had a SAG card. But then when I was in the service, uh, 
I would go into Washington, D.C. and study with Davy Marlin Jones. And I did a couple of plays in D.C. And one of them uh, was the only other Shakespearean play I did, uh, Richard III. But um, I did a couple of plays there at the arena. Really? Yeah. I did uh, um, Arthur Miller's play, All My Sons. I even ended up directing because the director got sick. So I had a couple of things where somebody got, you want to try it? Yeah, I'll do it. Because I didn't, you know, again, I didn't, I've never had that attitude of, oh, I can't do that. I always look at, wow, this will be fun. Yeah. I, I just have to ask because that's obviously such a big, I mean, no active duty Marine now. I mean, that'd be such a mountain to climb for them to go and professionally act on stage in D.C. and then also direct a thing or two while they're on active duty. Like, not not even because of the time. Oh, I, I was, it was right at the end. So I was rehearsing, knowing the play wasn't going to go up until I was out. I oh, was, wow. I was like a month in. But I was actually going in there on Tuesday nights for about four months. Well, well, forget about even the time commitment or the way it would work on the Marine Corps end. I'm just thinking of arena stage and of the professional theater like no well davy no. marlin jones got me involved in that he would direct there once in a while and he had I the see. washington theater club that's where i would study with him okay. and he would say would you be able to do that i said you know at first i said no i can't i got duty i don't even know if i can make class next week and then near the end i said yeah i'm i'm going to be done i'm teaching now i'm never worked beyond five o'clock i can get to washington dc by six what was the gear shift like for you to shift from marine officer to actor was there one uh, not really i thought really yeah wow. those di's that was some of the best performances i've ever seen you know i thought it was all especially being a teacher at the basic school learning how to tell jokes remember that was one of the rule you don't start a class without telling a joke first you know I remember Ollie North telling me, Dan, I need a couple of jokes, you know. And he, he was terrible at telling them. <laughs> I said, you got to lighten up, Cap. He was a captain. I said, you, you got to lighten up, Cap. Oh, my God. Okay, so after your work in D.C., did you know you were going to head to New York or were you going to stay in D.C.? No, I, I went. I was planning to come to New York, but I went home and they conned me into – coaching football at my old high school with a great coach named Bernie Wyatt, who was an All-American from Iowa. So I coached, and I would come in the city, like go to class and stuff, but it was half-ass. But while I was out there, I started writing on Linares. So then Bernie gets to go to the University of Iowa. That's where you Mm -hmm. undergrad was an all-american for fry was the coach oh yeah sure and he said listen you're going for your masters in playwriting iowa is one of the best schools for writing why don't you come as a graduate assistant in football <laughs> and i said you know if i do that i'm gonna end up being a coach but i was gonna go but i wrote something and submitted it to the university of connecticut and the Day before I was going to tell Bernie I'm going with you, I got a grant to go for my master's for playwriting at the University of Connecticut. So that was the biggest decision in my life. Why did you get into playwriting? I mean, because I was stuck on Long Island and I couldn't get here to act. So I figured I would write while I was. I didn't know it was going to work. So, and I'm still not a writer who acts. I'm an actor who writes. It's a big difference. 
huge difference. What do you think the difference is? Rewrites. Actors who write, rewrite. Most writers I know don't know how to rewrite. Neil Simon says that. The title of his biography is Rewrites. Right, right. And he, that whole prologue is, I know a lot of people who can write, even better than me, he says, but they don't know how to rewrite. And he learned how to rewrite from the Sid Caesar show, all those whole, no matter how funny it was, Sid Caesar was always pushing them to, there's something funnier here, there's something we can find. So, well, let me make sure I got that right. So you're saying actors do know how to rewrite? Do. Because you'll know if a line's not working. Writers write with a chisel, most of them. I know very few know how to rewrite. Mm. Mm. Okay. It seems like that would be a competitive advantage. If you know how to rewrite and you have the flexibility and the open-mindedness to try out different lines and know what works and know what doesn't and have that gut-level understanding, that that would be a competitive advantage then to be an actor who writes. Uh, Oh, Charlie... Durning thought so. I think so. I mean, Charlie, the one thing he would emphasize is there is no one way to say a line. I don't care how you wrote it. Mm-hmm. You know, so you always take in the... He and George C. Scott were great friends, and he would always talk about George C. Scott's phrasing. He, he, he said, George C. Scott's the only guy who puts two syllables in the word God. He never says God. He says God. You know, and so there's always... <laughs> You know, as actors, we hear those things. Writers only hear that one sound there. Yeah. Yes. And especially for playwriting, yeah. that's crucial, don't you think? As, as far as so. all writing media go. Yeah. Like playwriting, you to be an actor, you have to be an actor to be a playwright right. to some degree. Right. Yeah. The negative part is it takes me so much longer to write something. You know, like the play I have going up in March people say how long did it take you to write it well the first draft i wrote in a week there's not one line from that first draft in there it took a year and a half after that first week before i sent it to anybody and i always tell everybody i go to bed i think i'm eugene o'neill i wake up in the morning and i read what i wrote last night and i go this is garbage i throw it out i might keep a line or i'll come up like waiting for you today coming here I'm working on a speech that I know is going to be in the play. I'm not quite sure where, but it must be the 10th time I've written that speech. It's just not, it sounds good when I write it. And then I go back the next day and it's, it's not good enough. You know, there might be kernels in there, but little sprinkles on top of the ice cream. Yeah. There's not, it's not enough to, uh, to achieve what I want from the audience. How did you like formally being instructed in playwriting? Was it limiting for you? Was it freeing for you? Great teacher, Cecil Hinkle, Dr. Cecil, a real authority and wrote a lot of introductions into books about playwriting. Mm. He was, and he was big, tall guy, looked like W.C. Fields, even sounded like him, you know, Mr. Laureate. (laughs) And he was, he was a great teacher. And, the first play I had produced uh, was dedicated to him, and uh, he got to see that before he passed. But he was a funny guy. He was he he taught us one thing, and uh, and I kind of knew it because I liked the old movies. Every line is a setup. He said, "If you know, uh, hi, how are you today? I was fine till I saw you. You know, every line can be a setup. 
you know, it doesn't matter how gentle it is or how the depth it is, you know. How are you today? Why? <laughs> you know, yeah. this. Yeah. And you approach, after you write it out, you approach it like Ken Nisling, you know, like kneading bread, you know, and he, he really emphasized that. Plus, he made us read a lot of plays. He made us understand structure, you know. Uh, I mean, everybody from beginning, middle, and end to, with him, it would be collision factor, recognition scene, obligatory scene, you know. So I know all the structure things, but, uh, and he would say he hated young writers who, well, I don't believe in structure. No, no, first you got to f- prove you know this. You look at every, uh, every one of like Arthur Miller's plays, it's so structurally correct. Yeah. What did you struggle with? In writing, was there any struggle? It seems like all this was very natural for you. Yeah, I I never um, in L.A. when I got the Wonder Years, the first thing I did, I produced it. I produced a Bronx Tale, and De Niro bought it for us. But then Charlie Durning and I and Joe Montaigne, we started a reading series where every Monday night we read a new play to help writers get literary agents. And I really learned a lot. We did 10 years. We did 486 readings. And most of them were terrible. But the readings themselves were great because we always had major stars. They, it was their way to do theater. For We had one rehearsal, except for Peter Fogg. He made you rehearse five times. <laughs> oh, I can't do it like that. <laughs> Come on, Pete. We don't need to rehearse one. Just read. Say the freaking line. <laughs> you know, but they were... Um, it was you learn so much by hearing other people, and we wouldn't do the Q and A after. We would say, "Hey, go out to the bar. Everybody who's applauding will tell you how to rewrite the play." <laughs> but it was hanging out in the bar and hearing hearing writers resist some really good comment. I mean, if Charles Durning and Jack Klugman and Peter Falk say, "You know what didn't work? This right here didn't work." It didn't, trust me, they, they know what they're talking about. It doesn't work, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so we've got you to University of Connecticut. Did you finish the playwriting course there? Did you oh, yeah, my, my MFA is in, in playwriting. But then I didn't go back home and coach. I went to New York City. And what... what did you, were you making connections during that time? I mean, what, what was the plan for you? Did you think? No, I just came into New York. I and I, um, I wanted to track down Charles Durning because he was a vet, and I had met him when I was in the Marine Corps for like briefly. He says, "When you get out, kid, give me a call," you know. And I wrote something, and Eli Wallach was <laughs> doing a movie, and they were sitting there in the chairs. And I don't know how I got through, but I got through and I gave him a play. And he said, what's this? I said, it's a play I wrote. If you like it, call me. If you don't, throw it away. And then they threw me out, you know. And a couple of days later, I got a call from Eli, who I eventually got to know. And he said, you know, I read your play. I kind of like it. It's not for me, but I gave it to a friend. And if he likes it, he'll call you. And if he doesn't, he'll throw it away. I said, okay, thank you, Mr. Wallach. And two days later, Charles Durning called. And from then on, he, you know, I literally was with Charlie when he died. I was, I gave the memorial at his funeral and Jack Klugman's. And they both died four hours apart on Christmas Eve while I was doing a Christmas story on Broadway. 
I remember holding Charlie's hand, he passed, and I had to run over to the theater because if I missed the performance, he would have come back from the dead and killed me. <laughs> and I remember I was calling Jack Klugman to let him know, and as I flipped open the phone then, it rang, and it said, Jack Klugman. So I didn't even say hello. I said, how did you know? And Jack's wife, Peggy, said, no what, Dan? And I said, I was just calling you to tell you Charlie passed. And I heard her drop the phone on the floor, pick it up, and say, I was calling you to tell you Jack passed. So I called Paul Lieber, who was in charge of all the Broadway PR stuff. And I said, uh, Paul, it hasn't hit the news yet, but both Charles Durning and Jack Klugman died. You think there's a way we could dim the lights on Broadway for both of them? And there was a long pause. And I'll never forget it. And then Paul said, no, we're going to dim them two nights in a row. And it was the only time that the uh, lights on Broadway would dim two nights in a row for actors. So great guys. Great. Well, I mean, iconic actors. I mean, for sure. Um, let's talk about what they meant to you. How did you, why do you think you guys all became so close well, part of it was Charlie I knew from day one. So when I was with Vetco, we were all vets here in New York, had our own company. We were actually called the Vietnam Veterans Ensemble until Charlie joined us and screamed at us, how dare you? This should be called the Veterans Ensemble. We got Korean War, I'm World War II. So we did. We actually changed the name of the group. And he's the one who brought us to Joe Papp because they were very tight. So, and then when I went to... LA and I got the Wonder Years. Charlie is the one who made me produce a play and then he said, Let's do the reading series so we get on and because mm-hmm. of Charlie and Joe Montaigne, we we always had major we, Tom Hanks directed a couple he wouldn't read, but he directed a couple that Rita did. Wow. We had all sure. the great people. We had one reading with uh it was four old gay men uh on Thanksgiving. <laughs> it was called Thanksgiving. And it was actually well written, was never produced Unfortunately, the playwright died. And uh, But my four old gay men were Charles Durning, Rod Steiger, Jack Palance, and Robert Mitchum. You know? And the playwright was upset. Oh, they're not, they should be gay actors and all that. It was one of the 486 readings. It may have been the best one we ever did. Can, can you just tell everybody, because I love that story, uh, the, the full story that you told me about it. Can you tell me about your reaction when they first started rehearsing? Worst rehearsal I've ever been in. <laughs> All they wanted to know was what the narrator was going to say. They didn't want to, you know, Charlie read this, uh, 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 no, it was Mitchum read the setup for a joke and Charlie read the punchline. And they they mumbled through it. And then Mitchum looked at me and said, oh, we'll get a big laugh on that one tomorrow. Let's keep going. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm figuring just because they're great actors doesn't mean you can read. I knew Charlie could read because sure. they'd read a lot. Well, I'll tell you that the next night when we read it, you thought they rehearsed for 10 years. They were so good. And Palance, who I had never met before that, um, at one point, there was no blocking. He just jumped up out of his chair. He was the, the character who hadn't been there in 15 years. And Charlie was sitting next to him, and Mitchum was on the other side of Charlie, and he screamed at the top of his lungs at Mitchum and said, you cheated on me with that fat little bastard. 
And Mitchum, who was very sick at the time, he only lived a couple more months. He jumped up and yelled, because he loved me. And Charlie stood between them and started crying. Don't fight over me. I'm telling you, you're going to hurt a pin drop. So when it was over, I, you know, 90 minutes, no intermission. I go running back and I went, you guys were great. And Mitchum looked at me like, what did you expect? You know, and then Charlie said what he always said. He put his arm around me and very affectionately said, another 20 years, you'll be an actor. You'll get it. I mean, why would you question these guys? You know, what do you think now looking back on that? And not to get all wrapped up in process, but it is interesting the difference in actors who from day one are reading crisp, clear, getting the beats and actors who are mumbling their way through and just turning it on for the performance. Is it because they were used to doing it on film and they were? Yeah, we we have young kids today coming out of college, never having done a play. They've all made 10 minute movies. We have self taped at auditions instead of going in and winning over a room. Uh, we do, when I started in television, we would do two, three minute scenes without a cut. Now everything is cut, cut, mm-hmm. cut. Mm-hmm. Scorsese's new, I mean, Martin Scorsese, one of the greatest directors of all time. There's not one scene with DiCaprio and De Niro that's shot in a two shot. That's all single shot. You don't need to be an actor for that. And we didn't do anything to stop. Charlie Durning was always, he saw the movie Heat. And that, what, 98? 96. 96. And he said that was the end. They don't need us anymore. And I I didn't understand it until I watched it with him. And there's not one frame where Pacino and De Niro are in the same frame where they say anything to each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's cut. So they both talk about it. You don't have to listen to me. No, no, yeah. They both talk about it on the actor's studio. Yeah. And Charles Durning said, if they'll do that to the two best, they don't need us anymore. You got to remember, these guys grew up on live television. You did 90 minutes without a... It was cut, but cut while you're doing it. Right, right. It's continuous performance. These guys were... I mean, you you had to be... Acting was quite an art form. Now, on screen... You know, you don't see those long scenes like Tracy and Clark Gable together sure. without a cut. You don't sure. see that. There's no challenge to it. And there's no attention span to watch it either. That's, That's the problem. what they say. But I see these kids sit. I have them come over and watch an old movie. You show them Anthony Quinn and uh, uh, Julie Harris and, Art, and Jackie Gleason and Mickey Rooney and Requiem for a Heavyweight. They don't move. It's black and white. Yeah. They all got tears in their eyes. They're over I usually, when I show them, I usually stop it in the middle and go, oh, I guess you guys don't want to see the end. And no, no, but no. You know? And so I think if... If you make know, it, they will watch yeah. it. And we're paying for it now with the unions and right. AI. And, and even on stage, Broadway has become more theatrics. Yes. Instead of dialogue and acting. Yeah, and off Broadway, it, we haven't bounced back. Well, you know as well as anybody, we haven't bounced back from COVID. I want I I want to talk about the business, but before we do, I want to go back to a bunch of breadcrumbs that we that you dropped before. Um, talk about the formation of Vetco. How did Vetco come about? Well, uh, the head of the group was uh, a guy Tom Bird. Still see Tom once he moved up to San Francisco, and Joe Papp. He, he was the one who told us. He said, you know, everybody wants to write, direct, and act. 
But if your group is successful, the producer will be the one who moves on. And Tom actually got a job with HBO and worked there for years. And of course, as actors, we've all gone on to other things. But it was Tom who, you know, was a Vietnam vet and said, let's get a bunch of Vietnam veterans together. Jim Handy, a couple of guys who's still still in the business. Uh, Jim is a good actor. He's the one Paul Newman represented in uh, The Verdict. You know, mm-hmm. with the gray hair, yep. prematurely gray. Yep. Worked on a lot of movies. Even he now, they, they ask him to self-tape. He must have 50 movies in his thing. Right. Yeah. right. It makes It's so insulting. When they could easily just look at a reel right. of what we've right. done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then ask us self-tape and then offer a bigger name the role who didn't self-tape. See, I don't think guys like Charlie and Peter would have put up with that. Yeah. That's too insulting yeah. for them. Yeah, Jack. Jack had a temper. Jack. Jack would have been furious. You know, he couldn't stand more. You know, I. I. I didn't. I don't do revivals, and I was doing a, a show which I was playing Jack's son. We had a scene where he was dying, and as they were moving the camera, he goes, "You know, I know Charlie Durning." I said, "Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I, I know," and he says. I'm doing the price down at Coconut Grove. Charlie said you should do it with me. <coughs> and I said, Jack, I don't do real old plays. I, well, you're gonna do this one. I said, All right, I'll make you a deal. I'll do the play if you do two new ones. Oh, Jesus, I haven't read a good new play. Well, I went down and did that the price, which if it was submitted to you today as a new play, you would cut a third of it. And the stories in Miami are so, it's not a stereotype. They're really crazy now. <laughs> but Jack will tell you that his two last plays, one was with uh, that I did with him, Value of Names, and the other one he did with Charlie Dern and Golf with Alan Shepard, were the two best plays he ever had. And Value of Names, we got nominated for everything in L.A. Not, we never got it to New York. They wanted, we did it in Jersey, got rave reviews. They wanted to bring it to New York, but they didn't, they wanted me, and they didn't want Jack because because of his voice, which fit this character perfectly. And I wouldn't do it without him. So we did it at Gary Marshall's theater. We got nominated huh. for all those uh, 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 ovation awards, they're called out there. We what, didn't win, but we got nominated. For right, right, right. What year, um, what year did Vecco start? Do you remember? Vecco's... Uh, I wasn't at the initial when it initially started. I came in about six months later, but it had to be seventy five or seventy six in there. And it went until when? When did it? Oh, it went went a good ten years, and then a lot of us went out to L.A. and Tom went to HBO. But we, we, you know, we brought uh, Mike Salsona was part of us. He. Mike still is active with the DAV. He's a Marine who lost both his legs, became a playwright and a screen playwright and a sculptor. And uh, he was part of our group, and he had plays done at the you – know, Joe Papp really came. Yeah. Charlie was right about Joe Papp. He, that was the biggest loss in the theater. Totally. I, just talk for a second, if you can, about – I mean, it's – it's. I mean, obviously, at Vet Rep, we're, we're – in many ways, you know, a kind of a, 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 a 
second order effect of Vetco, or you know, we were a shadow of that in, in, in many respects. But then there was a community of veterans in the theater. Yeah. Now, I mean, with vet rep, I'm trying to bring veterans into the theater. There are veterans in the theater, but it seems, but we're certainly not concentrated and there's certainly it's, it's widely dispersed. What was it like for you guys to kind of, well, go- you got to remember Vietnam, we weren't popular. So we clung yeah. to each other. Oh, yeah. So that yeah. was, we would have never changed the name if it wasn't for Charlie Durney. He's the one who convinced Korean war vets and world war two vets. Yeah. Uh, Nick uh, Nick uh, Saunders, who was the voice of American theater in World War II, you know, on the radio, he did all my sons for Vetco. That was Charlie got him. Charlie was the one who got James Whitmore to come by. Charlie was the one who all these were a lot of the actors from World War II were veterans. Yeah, some were even established before the war. Jimmy Stewart, I got to meet him later on. He was still a general in the Air Force. You know, when well, he, that was the thing because it was the draft. Everybody had joined yeah. for the most part, so there were a lot of folks that had right. But they came home to a very popular. They were yes, they were not Vietnam vets, veterans. We were we, yeah. we had a if we didn't cling to each other, we wouldn't have. Had, and I think you're seeing a little bit of that now. I don't think Iraq and Afghanistan have been well received. But look who's the biggest supporter of them. It's Vietnam vets. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, well, because and, we know what we're, they're going through. Well, and. Uh, to, to some degree, because we, we have it a hell of a lot easier than you guys did um, reputationally. And I think for a lot of us, there's a sense that we need to doff the cap to well, the Vietnam yeah, era a the, lot. Yeah, the big difference was uh, you weren't drafted Vietnam. They were drafted. Sure, yeah. sure. I mean, not in the Marine Corps, but, but even the Marine Corps had 4,000 dra- uh, draftees. Well, and it's, it's funny, too, because the other, I think the other thing that we always bring up is which war would you have rather fought in? And I th- this is anecdotal, but from my from my anecdotal experience, most GWAT veterans were happy to have Afghanistan or Iraq as opposed to Vietnam. I've heard the opposite from some Vietnam folks, but I humbly submit they're wrong. But anyway, because yeah. that, I mean, we all grew up on books about Vietnam, and we're like, I don't know, that yeah, well, jungle, I don't know. You know, that's, that's, I, I, that's you know, I, I, I went to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan at Christmas time, but that was the closest I got. I went, went with Gary Sinise. Oh, yeah. 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 Lieutenant Dan Band. Uh-huh. And, um, but I, I, I don't know. I just think if you get out of there, all I know is when the shit hits the fan, it doesn't matter what your politics are, what you think about war. It's The only thing you care about is the guy next to you. You know, keeping him alive because he's going to keep you alive. Yeah. So, you know, as you and I have talked about, I mean, vet rep, I always say, you know, we're not here to help veterans. We're veterans that are here to help audiences and yeah. to help theater. And it seems like what I love about how you talk, I don't hear a lot of the things you say in the theater world. You're the only one I know that says them. But it seems like they're a little dollop of that humility and of that perspective would go a long way, and it's missing because most of the people, no fault of their own, that are in theater have been siloed in theater, have come up through theater. There's not the diversity of experience to go, oh, hey, I've been in a life and death situation. This ain't it. This is fun. This is gravy. Yeah, it's called a play for a reason. He's supposed to be playing. That's what Charlie would always say. Yeah, but I, I also I, I think a, a lot of that has, for me, has to do with – People like Charlie and Jack and Joe Papp and 
they really, it, it was more of a community then, you know? I mean, live theater for free in the park. Yeah. I mean, you don't see much of that anymore, you know? And if it is, it's become so, yeah, you know, commercialized. And, Joe, you know, Joe Papp started where the truck, where the side went down, and that was the stage. And you go in the middle of Harlem, and when you weren't on stage, you were out in the audience holding lights. I had There was a famous picture Charlie had, him and Vinnie Gugliotti, the casting director from the public theater, in costume, holding lights up, and on the stage is George C. Scott and Colleen Dewhurst. You know, Come doing on. Merchant of Venice. Wow. You know, and they would just pull up, drop yeah. the thing down, yeah. Spanish Harlem. Nobody knew what the hell they were doing. It's great. But, it, you know, is that Judy Garland? Let's do a play. And the, and the yeah. barn during the commercial becomes yeah. a Broadway stage. Yeah. You know, and uh, all that's kind of missing now. And I, 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 think, I think Fred Molina said it may have to go all – to the point where theater is, I, I, let me get the words right. He says, me and Dan Loria doing a one-act play on the corner of 36th and 5th Avenue, directed by Joe Montaigne, while Tony Schlub and Wendy Malick passed the hat around. He said, but, well, it may have to go that far with all the technologies before just seeing someone live in front of you with no cuts, no mechanics about it. I don't know how we're going to get there with all the AI stuff and everything, but it, it'll be a reaction. It'll yeah. be a reaction because people are going to need it. People still like to go see live music. They like to go see live stand-up comedy. They like live kinetic experiences. Yeah. And it's you just, notice what's happening with all of that. It's getting away from the cities. Yes. You yes. know, I mean, off Broadway is in real trouble. I got a play opening up in my and. and We've already gotten great reviews. I, we're going to have a hard time making six weeks because they just didn't come back from COVID. But out when we did it in the sticks, we did it upstate New York in Ellenville. When we did it in, in Great Barrington, they were theaters of 200 seats, but we always had at least 100 people. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you got a good review, the audience went up. Yeah. Here, if you get a good review, it doesn't mean it's going to go up anymore. And And yeah. that... When I started, that off-Broadway community, not yeah. Broadway. I never got to Broadway until long after. You know, I think, I mean, when I first got to Wonder Years, I did Other People's Money, but that was at Manetta Lane. That was the closest I got to a Broadway theater. Yeah, yeah. I played big theaters, you know, in the, around the country, but not not in New York. I didn't get to Broadway till Lombardi. You know, and then I did a Christmas story. Those are my only two Broadway plays. Lombardi was was that late nineties? Is that when that? Yeah, well, it was. <laughs> you can always tell when Lombardi was on because it was the last time the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl, <laughs> and I'm sure the coach had something there. So it was two thousand twelve. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Was that it? Two thousand twelve. Okay, right. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to skip over the trajectory of your life. Was was Vetco kind of the first time you'd fallen into the theater community? Or it were, was, there, were there other breaks happening for you at that point? Well, I, you know, again, I'm just a worker. So when I first came to New York, I found a couple of theaters that not only did they, I could build light grids. So 
I, I thought, boy, I must be a good actor. All these groups are asking me to be in their play. And then I noticed they were all asking me to build a light grid, too. So I did a, you know, and then I got involved with a, a play. It was called ATA. It's still around on 54th Street. Yeah. And I s- said to the guy, we got all this space in here. Why don't we bring some groups? So I brought in the form of Italian-American playwrights. I brought in Vetco. That's why we were. And, you know, and to kind of pay for the rent, we would do things like build the sets, build the thing, you know. So I was, again, a teamwork kind of atmosphere. And 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 we all worked together. You know, I, I really resent it when these young people, oh, we're only going to do plays by young people of diversity or young veterans or young black writers. Whoa, wait a minute. What do you, what, what's this young shit? Do you forget? Did you forget the Negro Ensemble? We, I remember Vetco. We were the first one to read a soldier story. And Tony Chisholm said, you know, we don't have enough black actors here. Let me bring this to the Negro. And, yeah, sure, Tony. I remember read, the very first reading they did. I read The Lieutenant. You know, we all worked together. Joe Papp was always there. You got something? And he wasn't investing in the play. He was investing in us as a group. You know? The Gay Alliance. I remember. They did Boys in the Band. They did Normal Heart. They did, yeah, all the Larry Kramer policy. plays. The gay characters are played by gay actors and the straight characters are played by straight actors. Now, you, all this prejudice towards old age, it's like, we, you know, 67, I marched in North Carolina, got my head beat in with Reverend Abernathy. You know, that doesn't mean anything anymore. Come on. You know, it's it's really it's, it's the arrogance of youth. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's it, an arrogance of youth. It's an arrogance yeah. for everything yeah. we've done. Even yeah. the self taping after you've done seventy guest spots, you know. But now we're allowed to ask if they have offers out, and you know what the reply is? Not yet. Yeah. They say, "Well, let me know when you do, because I ain't self taping. <laughs> I'll go in a room and audition." Did you? Did you have any aspirations to do TV and film early on, or were you all theater? It seems like I you was were completely all theater. All theater. My agent and Charlie Durning said, you can't keep doing this. you got to go to L.A. So I went to L.A. I had an agent out there, small one, never had a big agent. And uh, When was that? When did you go to L.A.? I think it was 86. So you had really given New York... Like ten, fifteen years. Oh yeah, point. I was. I was. I would. I did three plays in one night. That went. Wow. <laughs> yeah, had wow. to truck and warehouse. They had a one act festival. I was in the first act. Then I ran across the street to La Mama, and I was in the second act. And then I ran down a block where they were doing Peter Schaefer's uh, Dark Harmony. At the end, a German walks in, mumbles a few things in German, and falls through a flat. So I would do three plays. Because you were on East 4th. You were yeah. on East 4th Street. You could hit yeah. all of them. They were all That's on incredible. East 4th. By Phoebe's, remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. So. That's incredible. So yeah, it was the Colonial. That's where we did the... Well, and so, so we, yeah, we what, were all part of that. Yeah. What, what was it like then going to LA and suddenly it's it's the TV film beast? Like, what was that experience? I, what brought you out there? Was it just my you going a, on my your own? agent here said you can't keep doing this? You know, you you gotta. There's, I got an agent. Go out and try it. So, I lucked out. My first two years, uh, I did a whole bunch of Cagney and Lacey's. I was, I just did guess, and then I did two of Growing Pains, and the people who wrote. Growing Pains, Neil Marlin and Carol Black, they wrote the Wonder Years. 
And I couldn't even get in for an audition. And Joanna Kearns, who played the mom, yeah. she said, you should get in. Neil loves you. He's from Long Island. You know, we used to teach. I said, nah, I don't, you know, it's unprofessional to call him. So Joanna Kearns called the casting director and said, why isn't Dan in there? Neil loves him. So I guess the casting director, Mary Buck, asked Neil. He said, oh, yeah, Dan, he'd be very, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And I went yeah. in, and the network didn't want me. They wanted uh, Elliot Gould. Uh, yeah. But the writers insisted we want people that are not well-known, that looks like the neighbors next door and all that stuff. You know, so I got it because I didn't look like an actor. <laughs> so what else is new? Well, and, and but that is kind of your brand in a lot of ways, right? I mean, even now sitting here, I mean, you know, there's there's a there's so many differences between you and what most people would consider a New York based theater actor. Yeah, who's put this year? Like, you don't have the affectations. You don't have you have humility. You there's there's a regularness to you that is well. Why would I why, why would I waste my energy playing a role when we don't have to? <laughs> That's the truth. You know, that's the fucking you only truth. have so many parts left in you. Yeah, you know? no, absolutely. What was it like? Charlie Derny was the funniest guy I've ever seen on interviews. Well, I want to ask you a lot about him in a minute because, because yeah. I mean, yeah, he, it, yeah, I mean, his his Nazi in To Be or Not to Be, he got nominated, which he got nominated for. I mean, I grew up on that movie. That yeah. movie, even to this day, like one of the funniest things is showing my kid that movie and having him fall in love with that movie the way I did. It, it, Charlie is incredible. And I stole. I the very first time I, I got sorry I got to bore you with yeah. this the very first time I ever got on stage in high school I stole his butt slide like, off, off the, the table, off the desk when he, when yeah because <laughs> I just was like oh well, sure this makes sense yeah. he, like he he and to this day like from the first time I saw that movie I remember I was one of the happiest moments of my life because my parents and I sat through it over here on the east side we saw it in a the movie theater and we stayed all the way through the second showing of it after we just didn't leave the theater because we've right. been laughing so hard and it has lost none of its beats since then. Like Charlie is still pitch perfect all these years later when you watch it, it's like you couldn't have done that role any better. And he got nominated for best little whorehouse. That's him dancing That's right. and singing. A hundred percent. Well, and then of course and dog he, day afternoon. And I mean, like he's got so oh, many, yeah. you know, and, I mean, and, and the one he, he, which he won the uh, summer war, but not, didn't get nominated was, uh, the father and Tootsie. Oh, yeah, of course. Everybody remembers oh, him. Oh, that. hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious with that. I mean, so, yeah, we, we got to talk about him in a minute. But for you, when you got on the Wonder Years, I mean, what did that mean for you? I mean, did you know it was a hit right off the bat? I, I, I did an alley who played my wife. Uh -huh. She said, we're in a hit. And I thought it was too good. I thought it... it just didn't fit the format. They didn't even know what to call it. We, I, I, as far as I know, we were the first ones to call a dramedy. Huh. Yeah, they didn't know if it was a comedy or they. Right. But because it was a half hour, not an hour, they put it in the comedy, you know, nomination right. bracket. Right. And uh, I just thought it was too good. I said, you know, there hasn't been television like this since Norman Lear stopped. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and or you got to go back to the Playhouse 90s when there was real writing and real acting and, you know, right. great stuff. And I don't know why they don't do anthology shows anymore. It's cheaper. It's better quality. And, you know, a guy like George Clooney would be the host. You know, yeah. everybody oh, would great. watch. Yeah. yeah. And he would be able to get major. And, and, you know, George is such a nice guy. I think if some network went to him, he would 
jump at the chance to do it because he's old Hollywood. But they, I thought the one of the years was just too good. And then we won best show the first two years we were on. Matter of fact, they changed the rules. We won best show after only having six on the air. Uh. And after that, they said you got to have at least 12 huh. on the year. And that's why most contracts are for 12. Interesting. Interesting. What did, it, what did it mean for you then two years in? Now you know you're, you have a hit. Did it change anything for I mean, obviously, I mentioned financially and your prestige, but I mean, for your mindset, did it, did it change anything? Uh, not, not really, because of Charlie. What? He goes, oh, you're a big shot now. You want best show? <laughs> so what are you going to do? I said, no, what, what, let's go do a play, Joe. And he said, no, we can't leave. We're both work. He was on Burt Reynolds' show. So he goes, I said, well, I'm going to produce a play. So I produced The Bronx Tale. And then I produced The One Woman Show. And then we started the reading. And, the started, reading. and we couldn't get out of there. Because during, you know, every Monday night, they would be full. And we'd have one rehearsal. we read a play. But during the week, if somebody had a screenplay, no audience, we would just put a big table on the stage and we'd sit around and read. I remember reading Chris Lemon's screenplay, which was hysterical. And, uh, and John Polito was in it. Oh. And the only three people in the audience were Jack Lemon, his wife, which is Chris's stepmother, and Walt, uh, Walter Matthau. And there we were. And, and and Jack Klugman, who I had just done a play with, but he had never read with our group, you know, he came that day and right away, Jack, get up here. What what the hell's going on? And he looks at Jack Lemon and goes, Jack, what are you doing? He goes, my son wrote this. You know? <laughs> and we go, Jack, Jack, Jack Klugman, come on up here. You, you read this character, this character, and this character. Oh, what the hell's going on? And we'd all sit there and we'd read. And I, I remember Joe Montaigne coming. Uh, no, it was John Ritter nicest man in the world. Oh. He called and he said, hey, Dan, can um, can I use the, the conference room? We want to read this movie. And it's only like eight of us. And I had gotten the people together. I got Joe Montaigne and Charlie, you know, the guys. Yeah, the yeah. Regular guy, you know, Wendy Malick. And I, I was doing something like cleaning the toilets or something like that. And when they, when they were over, I remember them walking down the stairs and Joe Montaigne saying to John Ritter, you shouldn't read the bad guy. You should read the gay guy I read. And I, I have no idea what they're talking about. And then John comes, oh, Dan, thanks for the room. We had a great reading. He goes, here's, here's the author, Billy Bob Thornton. It was Sling Blade. Wow. Wow. And, you know, uh, Robert Lozier got the part that Charlie Durning read, and John Ritter did do the gay character. And what was the country singer ended up reading the part that right, John right, right. read? Yeah, and I had no idea until and then, and then Joe said, "You don't remember that, do you?" And I said, "Oh, was that what you read up there?" He goes, "Because I wasn't in it. I was that cleaning totally, this totally." Holy. What was the name? Of, did you guys have a name? For yeah, we're Playwrights Kitchen Ensemble. And did you have a, your own space, or were you just renting space someplace? We started at the Odyssey Theater, and we did. We were going to do one a month, and, at, and there was only a hundred seats. And Ron, who runs it, was generous as you couldn't believe. But we didn't have enough. We just started getting these celebrities. So then we went to the. It was called the Westwood Playhouse. Then it was five hundred seats, and we were there two years, and then. Geffen came in and threw us out and said we were too high profile. You got to remember, most reading, most 
regional theaters don't have a reading series. Right. Because if I read a great play and the artistic director doesn't do it and does something that bombs, his board's saying, why didn't you read that play? And sure. they, they did, and I still never worked at the Geffen again, and I, we were there every week. And the only play they did that we read, we read a play with Peter Falk and Woody Harrelson, and they ended up doing it at the Geffen with Peter Falk and Jason Alexander. And both Jason and Peter mentioned our group, like, Thank you for finding this play for, and they made them take it out of the really, bio. yeah, really, yeah, and I I can understand why. Bec- and then um, Phyllis, who's still there, was uh, Geffen's assistant. Said, "No, Dan, that they don't want wow. to be put in a position yeah. where they got to pick what you read." You got you to remember about every fourth reading we did, we always had celebrities. Yeah, but about every fourth reading was pretty damn good, and most of those writers never got their plays produced, but they all ended up writing on television, not because they wanted to, but because they would get paid well, and nobody was doing new plays. So what's interesting a lot of, a lot of this is interesting to me, but one of the biggest things that's interesting to me is that here you are ascending the career ladder in TV and I don't hear you going on and on about other TV projects you wanted to jump on or films you want to do for you. The prize was getting now to go back put to theater, theater and, yeah. and put I've theater. never gone a year without doing a play. Matter of fact, Charles Durning said, if you ever go a year without doing a play, I will never speak to you again. And I never went a year, even during COVID, you know, and Charles Durning never went a year without doing a play. You wouldn't believe some of the movies he turned down. He goes, nope, doing a play. Do you enjoy filmed media? Do you enjoy doing it. TV and film? Yeah. I hate it. I hate it because I know what happened on the set. And when I see it cut up, I, I, it just hurts. You know, I, I, I loved working Cagney and Lacey with my dear friend, <laughs> Tyne Daly. And, and uh, it, it, uh, especially when Jackie Cooper directed. Tyne and Jackie sometimes would argue, but. Jackie always knew I was going to get there early. And we'd go in Tyne's trailer, probably have a you know, <laughs> nice drink there, <laughs> and we would run our lines, and we would talk, and we would work out bits. And then when the crew came to wherever we were going to shoot our scene, Jackie would say, my two horses, show me what you got. And we would go through it without stopping, full out. He wouldn't even have the crew in there. And then he'd bring a crew and he said, put the camera over here. And we'd always do it in one. Sometimes, you know, like when she was behind bars, wow. we'd have to do cut. But most of the time, we'd do it in one and he would do what they called the cat in the window. He would take a shot of something mm-hmm. that wasn't us. Mm-hmm. So if we wanted to do first half of one and the second half of number three take. But we very seldom did more than that. And he... And Jackie Cooper would get pat on the back from the producers. Thanks for saving us the money. Boy, you try to do that now, you'll never work again. I always tell young directors, if you listen to me, you will be a much better director and you'll never work again. (laughs) Don't listen to me. They just want you to fill that editing machine. They don't care about the moments that happen. Some of the greatest moments in film are because there was no cuts. Sure. Yeah, and you talk to people like Mitchum or Jimmy Stewart and, and you know Cesar Romero is a 
the best storyteller of all of them. Mm. They, the, they would work. You know, they went to work every day, whether they were shooting or not. Well, what they were doing was usually rehearsing scenes on the upcoming movie they knew they were going to be making. So they they couldn't wait to get there, and 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 then those supporting actors like Frank Fallon, people like that, mm. they would come on the set thinking that they have nothing, they weren't going to work, and somebody come running over, go over to stage fourteen, you're doing a scene with Cary Grant, oh. and oh. and they wouldn't go wow. bother the director, they'd knock on the door, Cary, what are we doing? Oh, come on in, Frank, you know, and they would work out bit. You couldn't do that today; they'd throw you off the set. Did you drive your agent nuts? Were they like, hey, would you focus on TV and film? I'm nuts now. Than really? I, yeah. Why? Because I won't self-tape. Oh. I, yeah. I just think it's so disrespectful. I will. Yeah, I would if they weren't going to offer it to somebody else. And I'll still go in the room, but they don't want you in the room. So. Right. Did you actively, career-wise, did you actively look for film and TV to do or was were you always magnetically drawn back to theater in a way that that was where the passion was and that's just where you're always was. always still always with the theater and always looking for that young group that reminds me of our young groups you know I remember uh, I was doing Ann Nelson's The Guys yeah. and she said I'm sending a young director down I want you to meet him. I met him. You know, we went out to dinner a couple of, matter of fact, Danica McKellar was there, Winnie Cooper. And of course he was in awe of her. She's so beautiful. Yeah. And I remember saying, do you do old, your group do old plays? And he goes, well, we've done a couple. I said, waste of time. And I kind of ignored him. And then he dropped a knife on the floor and it made a loud sound. And he went, I'm all right. I'm all right. And I looked at him, I said, what movie is that from? He said, it's a wonderful life. I said, I want to know about your group. It was Tommy Kale. So I meet Tom Kale. He meet, introduces me to Lin-Manuel Miranda. I go down to the wow. basement of the bookstore. I see one song from a thing they're working on. Wasn't he, I wouldn't even call it a musical yet. And I brought them to my agent. I said, these are the two most talented kids I know. And they laughed at me. And they laughed at them. They said, the Puerto Rican kid can't sing, and the director looks like Clarabelle with dark hair. <laughs> so I said, wow. well, look, I'm going back to L.A. I got work. You guys can have my apartment. It's free. Just don't worry. Well, sure enough, what I saw became In the Heights. Then Tommy gets to direct Lombardi, and they don't want me. They want a movie star. They wanted uh, the guy from Without a Trace, the Australian-Italian actor. can't think of La Paglia. Oh, yeah. 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 And there was somebody. Oh, and Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen said, are you kidding? I'm way too old for this. And Tommy insisted on me. So I flew in on my own money, read for the playwright and the producer and David Marinus, who wrote mm -hmm. the book that it was based on. And Tommy just, after I read, they said, oh, he is Lombardi. But I wouldn't have got that without Tommy. How did it feel for you to play Lombardi? Was that like coming full circle? Oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. Plus the Anna Favelle, especially the Mara family. Yeah. 
if I wanted to talk to Bart Starr, 10 minutes later, Bart Starr was on the phone. Wow. You know, and then every Thursday night, it was the NFL's suggestion that we have a Q&A, and they always had a major star there. Uh, they had Frank Gifford there. They had, you know, yeah. James, uh, Jim Taylor was there. And, uh, you know, they were, oh, and the opening night, God, Charlie Durning and Jack Klugman and, and Tyne Daly. And they're sitting with, you know, these uh, Jerry Kramer and all these guys who played for Lombardi. And, of course, they're all enamored of the actors and the actors are yeah. all enamored yeah. of the athletes. And it was a great night, you know. That must have been a hell of a thing to see your two worlds coming together like that. Oh yeah, I I, I knew Yogi Berra, but the, the night he came, because the opening speech, which is Lombardi in that play, is the actual speech Lombardi gave to the Packers the day he was the first day there. But he says in that speech, uh, "We're going to be the Yankees of professional football." Well, Yogi came with Hank Aaron and Frank Robinson. Holy crap. And they set, the three of them set together, Yogi in the middle. So I and it was in the round, and I'm yeah. supposed to use the audiences if yeah. they're a team. So I looked right at Yogi. You're going to be Yankees, a professional. And afterwards, they came back, and Hank Aaron said, thank God you didn't say Yankees again. Yogi almost killed us. He was elbowing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, nights like that was, were great. You know, and I remember Cower came. They had a night when they were all Howie Long and all, and yeah, Cower came. Yeah. And Cower had made fun of the Dolphins coming to our show and then the next day playing the Jets. And he made fun before the game. Well, they killed the Jets that day. So I called him up and I said, you know, as a coach, I wish you had come with the Giants. As a critic, I think you ought to. <laughs> Finding something else to do. He was. He laughed his ass. He was great about it. You know, I I can't help but mention this. You have more stories, and you've met more people, and you've been friends with more people. Why? How? Because it seems like you have trafficked in a lot of social capital, which is the business. Yeah, meeting people, rubbing elbows with the right folks. But it hasn't changed you. And it doesn't, and it seems like, you know, like, what does that meant? Well, it, it, again, that goes back to Charles Durning. And Charles Durning always said he kind of got that attitude from Joe Pat is always make sure the people you're working with know you're more concerned about them than you are about you. So we started that reading group in LA. I got so much. I mean, we would play cards with Sid Caesar and Charlie Durning and Rod Steiger and Tom Poston and Joe Ballone. Mm. They were all, all that came from the reading group. But the reading group wasn't set up to help my career. The reading group was to get writers, literary agents in Hollywood because we knew playwrights were better than the writers they were hiring. Well, of half the work I've gotten since that group was I'll walk on a set and the writer goes, you don't remember where you read a play of mine. And when we wrote this, I thought of you. So it all comes back, but you can't do it with, oh, I'm only going to do it if I get the part. You know, and Charlie Durning was like that. You know, Charlie would always say, watch, I see it. I'm not in it. And then he goes, but I'm glad Eli got it. You know, he lean. There was that don't ever... I think in our business is very easy to be selfish, but I yeah. think, especially when I was around people like 
with the National Veterans Foundation with with Jimmy Stewart and Robert Bitchum and that. and you know when you got to meet those guys and like Cesar Romero would say you know these guys would go out of the way to get you jobs back then when they got the power we all got the power mm-hmm. you know and 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 you talked you know and I remember saying to Robert Mitchum how come the room the room changes when Jimmy Stewart walks in and he goes when God walks in the room it huh. changes and he said you know how many people he's helped you know and Mitchum was the same way. Women love, the actresses loved to work with Mitchum because he was not what you thought. He was very protective of the actresses. He actually punched out Otto Preminger for the way he treated Gene Simmons. Really? Yeah, he wow. was very protective of people. He didn't like it. This was long before the proper thing, you know, yeah, PC right. stuff. right. He was, you know, you don't wouldn't think that of Robin Mitchum. I thought he was a woman. Yeah, right, right. Bad Bob Mitchum. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, I mean, he had his affairs, but he on a set, he'd rather hang out with the crew. He was always, he would always say, John Wayne. The only reason why he never stopped acting, he was afraid to put all those people out of work. I'm going to ask a loaded question. Do you think? Do you think method acting? naturally will make an actor more narcissistic and less community focused and focused on the well-being of others. And I'm only saying that because hanging out with the crew, Bob Mitchum, hanging out with the crew, not sitting there worried about his performance (laughs) and that helps. Right. I mean, and and I don't, I'm not wedded to what I'm saying to the, to, I'm not asking this question with, with an answer in mind. I'm legitimately asking him just because you, you've talked about, Hey, I, I don't get butterflies. You know, I, not a method guy, and you're also very affable, very, you build a community, you have a lot of love for your fellow actors, for the medium that you're working in. It seems like those are all of one piece, that it's all caught from the same cloth, or am I overthinking this? Well, Charlie Durning would always, a lot of young actors would ask him, you know, who who should I study with and stuff like that. Charlie was not a method actor, not like Peter and Jack. But, um, and Charlie would always say, well, first, you should audit a number of teachers because what's right for me might not be right for you. Sure. But then he would always add, don't ever study with someone who takes the fun out of it. It's called a play for a reason. And that's the way I feel. I don't mind working with men. I don't care. Matter of fact, I like on stage, I like the method actors who are yakking away with the director for hours because then I don't have to rehearse. I can sit there and read my lines. You know, go ahead, talk all you want. You know, Mitchum had a great story about, uh, he didn't like to talk about acting, but I asked him, is it true you really liked working with John Hughes? And he goes, oh, yeah, I liked John. He said, he only said three words to me. He would either say print or Mitch a little more or Mitch a little less. Okay, John. And we do it. And I said, was he that way with Deborah Kerr? He goes, oh, no. He talked to her for hours. He was always trying to get in her pants. (laughs) And I I said, didn't bother? He goes, no, I don't want to rehearse. I knew my lines. I'm ready to go. So when you overthink it, sometimes you, you go past something that was really good. 
before you even tried it. When it comes, obviously film being a little bit different or a lot different, when it comes to theater directing, what do you like in a director and what do you not like? I I love the way Tom Kale directed. I thought he used the previews better than any director I ever worked with. Really? Yeah, because he, he just kept emphasizing don't get locked into anything. You know, he would love something and say, I really like that, but don't feel you have to do that tomorrow night. You know, maybe you want to laugh instead of cry or something. Don't don't lock in yet. Don't lock in yet. And, of course, eventually you did something he really loved, which was a way of getting what he wanted. And But, like, every once in a while he'd admit, you know, I never saw that, and I think this is better. And I, and I like that, again, playing. There was a great thing in Lombardi, I don't know if another director would have found it. Lombardi carried a rosary, and it was written that I take it out once. And Tommy Kale said, we either got to find another space to take it out, mm-hmm. or we got to drop it, you know, and which we, Judith Light and I understood, you know, I understood. So he suggested something, and we took it out, and didn't work. <laughs> And when he shows up, he goes, well, I guess that one didn't work. I said, well, let's try it again tomorrow. Maybe I didn't go for it enough. And Judith went, no, it didn't work. You know, Judith, she's she's great. So we went for a couple of days. And then there was a scene where Judith and I have an argument. And and when it's over, I look at the reporter and say, that's why I love her. And it it was Tommy directed with kind of a comic element to it. Mm -hmm. And for some reason... Judith came out, and the first line, she yelled at me. <laughs> and this is in front of an audience. It was a preview. Matter of fact, it was before we even came into New York. We were up in the Berkshires. And I yelled back, and we were just went out. And poor Keith Nobbs, who was the reporter, he didn't know what was going on. Uh, and she started crying, and. I yelled at her, and she walked off, and I pulled the rosary out, and I held it at her as she's leaving, and I turned around to Tommy with the uh, to Keith with the rosary in my hand, and said, "That's why I love her," and walked off. Tommy Kelk says, "I don't know what the hell you guys did tonight, but keep that." So he took this. He allowed us to play enough that we trusted each other now that could never happen in a rehearsal it had to happen with an audience it had to happen at full speed Mm -hmm. but if you didn't have the courage or were not given the courage by tommy to go for things like that you'd never find them jack uh, charlie always say i always find more when the director's gone we're in a run we've been doing it for two or three weeks and all of a sudden something happens you know, what do you not like in a director? What are what are red flags to you in th- in a on director? On this line, move your hand here. <laughs> yes, you know, I, I I don't I don't and I don't like directors who say uh, if you go with a no impulse, they go no 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 no. I want you to sit instead of stand over there, and then the next time somebody just the opposite happens. They'll go, oh, no, we want you to go with your impulse. Those are contrary. Either if you want to block it, fine. I'll figure out why it works or I'll make it work. But you can't 
block it and then go, oh, no, you got to follow impulse over here. You know, you have a plan. Now, Tommy goes in. I think Tommy knows more of what he wants than he gives away. But he keeps having you try it until you hit what he wants. And then yes. he goes, oh, let's go with that. Yes. But he also has been around enough now to know sometimes they'll find something I didn't think of and it's better. But if he didn't let you explore, if he locked you in right away, you wouldn't find it. So he used previews better than any director I've had, stage director. In television, of course, we there aren't the Jackie Coopers. And they don't shoot two, yeah. three-minute scenes. We're yeah. in a cut, so there is no direction. It's over the shoulder, closer, closer, over the shoulder, closer, closer. Yeah. And the master is used for the first line and the last line. That's it. Right. It's right. all the same. Right, right. And not very fulfilling for an actor. Not for me, no. Yeah. Um, what are your regrets? Oh, a lot. Really? Oh, yeah. I think I got five regrets since I got up this morning. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I know, oh, I have no regrets. You know, I remember reading Frank Sinatra. He says, regrets, you know, yeah, that's song. I've had a few. Yeah, yeah. He would always say, I have a few, too many. And then he'd go back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but, uh, Professionally, I, professionally, a lot. Of yeah, things. a lot of. Um, I remember I left a, a very good literary agent, and uh, because of a promise, and she warned me, "They're not going to keep your promise." I wish I'd stay with her, but then again, if I did, I think I would have been more in the writing end instead of the acting end. Would you have been unhappy with that? I would have been happy that I could have given a lot of friends work, mm-hmm. but I don't know if. I just, I, I don't know how you can, uh, somebody like Botchko, Stephen Botchko, great guy, great guy. But he couldn't get out of what he was doing if he had dynamite. Right. right. You can't just abandon all those people. Even when he did Hill Street Blues and he brought in, what's his name, Melch in there. Mm-hmm. He still was there all the time. Yeah. I did a couple of things for him. And uh, what a nice man. He even let me write a little bit. I remember where the show with John Ritter, I wrote, I was playing Barbara Boston's husband, and I did some crazy things in Bosco. John Ritter made him come down and say, he's crazy, you got to watch it. <laughs> and I said, I got an idea for this character. He didn't say, oh, well, yeah, sure, let me know. He said, no, write it out. Write it out and let me read it. And he wrote it and said, we're going to use these scenes next season. But then the show got canceled. But he actually paid me for writing. Really? Yeah. What else? What other regrets did you have professionally? Uh, I don't know. I wish I did a few more plays. You know, now my knees are gone. I don't know how many more plays I got. So Are they gone? In what way? It hurts going up and down the stairs. I couldn't do Lombardi. Now, that was on a rake stage. Um, yeah. I couldn't get up those Vaughns like I... Oh, uh, gotcha. You know, and I, I did Bill Master Simone's play, A Stone Carver, which I loved. Um, that had like a five-minute fight scene in it. Uh, I couldn't do it. Yeah. And I was doing it with a, a good actor and who was an athlete. And we did a hell of a fight. And But as good as we were at it, Every week, one of us got clipped. Huh. Not intentionally. Yeah. You know. Sure, sure. It just, you know, you don't duck in quick enough. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. But it was, a, it was a great play. Bill's a hell of a writer. So. Uh, 
Well, you stumbled onto so many projects. I mean, whether it's in the Heights, whether it was Bronx Tale and all that. But it seems like you, for the most part, you leveraged it. For the most part, like you had Bronx Tale, you produced yeah, it. Yeah, well, I never had a it. big agent. I never had an I was never packaged into something. Would Even, you have wanted to be? Yeah, sure. Are you kidding? I mean, I watch these movies. I see somebody like a good actor, Bruce McGill. Perfect mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I see Bruce McGill, I go, how come I didn't read for that? Well, Bruce is packaged into it. Yeah. He's with the agent that has that director, that writer, the major star. Bruce is never the major right, star. Right, right, you know, and, and he's a good actor. I mean, yeah. He's been around. But I saw Bruce do a play out of Pasadena Playhouse, and he used to read for us on our readings once in a while. And I said, Bruce, you were, you were great. And he went, I don't know how you do it, Dan. I, I can't do eight of these a week. I'm going, I can't wait for it to end. And I'm looking at him going, oh, man, I'd give my right arm to be you to go out there eight times a week. Interesting, yeah. You know, so I always, I always thought I would have been an actor like Charlie, one of those supporting guys in movies. Yeah. I didn't think television was going to be my medium or... Uh, yeah. You know. Do you think if you'd been in the packages, though... Um, being that film has gone the way film has gone, let's say you were doing all the Bruce McGill roles, just hypothetically. Yeah. Would that have been fulfilling for you? I don't know if I could find, like, if I could do it the way Charlie did it. In what way? How did how Well, Charlie, Charlie would do two or three movies a year, but still do a still play. Do a play. He would say to his age, he was with a big age, he said, I'm doing a play from this date to this date. Anything else you can book, I'll do whatever you want. He never quit. If somebody asked him to do a movie, I'm there. I'm in. He loved working with his friends, but he always had to do a play. And of course, at Charlie's level, a lot of those plays were on Broadway. Yeah, sure. You know, with George C. Scott and Inherit the Wind. Uh, they did Gin Game with Julie Harris. Sure, sure. That's right. Do you think, had you been part of packages in LA, that would have done more for your theater profile? Do you think it would have sure. allowed you to do more theater? Sure. Just look at what happens when a movie star goes in a yeah. play. Yeah. You sell more tickets. Sure. You got to remember, being a dad of the Wonder Years, I don't sell one ticket in New York. You know, maybe 5% of the tickets at mm-hmm. times. But if I'm doing a play in Duluth, Iowa, right? I'm selling... 25% of the tickets say, oh, that's the guy from the Wonder Years, you know, because you're in their living rooms all the time. So in L.A., I didn't, I've never done many plays in L.A. Joe Montaigne's got me into a couple. But um, we don't really, there's so many stars there. Sure. You're not going to sell that many tickets. Uh, but, in, you know, like I, I love working with Wendy Malik. We'll go do the guys or... Uh, love letters to raise money for theaters. Mm-hmm. And if we're only going to do two or three performances, it's packed. Yeah, right, right. It's packed. Oh, she's on this show. He's mm-hmm. from one year. She's on Just Shoot Me, Hot in Cleveland. Yeah. Now yeah. she's on the new. She's with a big agent. Yeah. She's never have to self-tape. She's on Harrison Ford's new show. Right, right. So it's there's a real cast system. Well, what would you have done differently, though? Because it seems like you did what you wanted to do when you wanted to do it. Or well, it's not when I right? wanted to do it. I did okay. what I could. 
Okay. That's not what I wanted to do. I would have loved, you know, like I say, when I see Bruce McGill, yeah. like I loved Cinderella Man. I thought it was a good movie. I would have loved to play Bruce's porn. I'm not knocking him. I thought he no. was terrific. Sure. But I would have liked to have a shot to read for that, you know? Yeah. And there, there, I can think of, a, I, I love those old supporting actors. I wanted to have the career Charlie Durning had. Yeah, you know, I wanted to be uh, the Lloyd Nolans, the Frank Fallons, the Edmund yeah. O'Brien. You know, not necessarily the lead guy, but always those good supporting roles, and you could count on the Dan Duryeys. You know. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. What's been the most fulfilling role you've had? The next one. Really? Yeah. You really? never look back. That's so if somebody awesome. gives me two lines. In a little movie, that's going to be the most fulfilling thing I know. I remember some kids just asked me, they said, we need a guy, to, a homeless guy to come here and have a heart attack. He's got no lines. And I said, I'll do it for you. I said, what are you, what are you going to do that for? I said, I'll do it for you. But I worked on grabbing my left arm before I hit the street. And I remember Glenn Ford doing it in the Superman. Because if you get a heart attack, you feel it in your left arm first. And I wanted to try it. And they were like wondering... He's got no dialogue. Why is he over there? You know, the director came up. We saw you over there. You you must have practiced that about nine times. And at my age, it's hard to fall down and get up. Yeah. And I said, yeah, because I wanted to work on it. You know, it doesn't matter. Sure, there's small, like Charlie Durning. There's a lot of small roles. I know. I played them all. You know, <laughs> but that doesn't mean, you know, Work on it, you know. I loved working with Tommy Kell. I loved working with Judah Light. I loved working with Wendy Mallet, Joe Montaigne. I mean, it's we never discuss what's good or bad. We discuss what do you want to try? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I know that's why I like Tommy. He didn't make lock us in so early. He always, yeah, made you feel that give okay, you the freedom. We, even when we were locked in, he, he would always say, "Yeah, you know." I remember. Chris, uh, who's on Just Shoot Me, he was playing Jim Taylor. And we were in a round, but the last seats sold were behind him in the scene with just the two of us in my office. And sometimes there wouldn't be a lot of people there. So we actually would adjust the blocking as we were doing it. It's interesting. And I thought it was, and Chris said, Why? remember the first time I did it, and Chris, Chris Sullivan, he said, why did you go over there? I said, Chris, there was nobody behind. Why, we, why would we block out the owner? He goes, oh, I didn't think of that. Well, he was like a Negro yeah, Beaver. Yeah. He was always adjusting. He was really? like, it keeps you alive. It's not yeah. like you're thinking out of character. You're just thinking of giving your best performance for everybody. And I love things like that. And then when Tommy says, oh, I see what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, right. Why would we face that way? It looks like I can't block it. I said, yeah. no, we're saving your ass. <laughs> yeah. I, I, we, we can't stop this interview without talking about uh, Charles Durning, just putting a cap on him yeah. and, and what he meant. What did he mean to you? He was like my dad in the business. He was, uh, I always tell this story when I do a lecture at college, uh, Charlie, every time I did something, and he saw everything I did, he would always put his arm around me and say, another 20 years, you'll be an actor. And I'd say, okay, Charlie, I'll keep working. Yeah. So now I did the play with Jack Klugman, 
the value of names. Mm-hmm. And we would go to dinner a lot. Charlie, Jack, Peter Falk, Dom DeLuise, huh. myself. Sometimes I'd bring a young writer just to hear the same stories again. If you ever get Wendy Malick to do one, she'll tell you she came a couple of times. She says, Those were the best dinners you'll I ever bet. I bet they were. So Jack, like once I said to Jack Klingler, we were good tonight. And he goes, we're always good. That's not what it's about. So we had Monday and Tuesday off. We're at the Gary Marshall Theater. And who comes in on the Sunday show? Peter, Charles Durning, and Dom DeLuise. So Jack comes running in the room. My dressing room said, Dad, you got to do it for us. Don't do it for them. Don't get caught up in that. You know, I said, Jack. They're our friends. What are they going to do? Shave my head and send me back to Nam? Come on. <laughs> he goes, you're right. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> so we go out. We have one of those magic nights. I don't know what causes it. We're always, like Jack says, we're always good. We always give the people their money is worth. But sometimes, and we had one. So while we're bowing, Jack says, we got to get the boys together, find out what the hell we did right tonight. So Tuesday, we go to dinner. Great stories. And Charlie, very emotionally, I mean, the man who means more to me than anybody else in this business. He puts his arm around me and he says, all right, another 10 years you'll be an actor. (laughs) I thought I won the Academy Award. (laughs) And Jack, the great Jack Klugman, leans into Charles Durning and says, Charlie, are you an actor yet? And Charles Durning leans in and he takes his thumb and forefinger and puts it about an inch apart. And he said, Jack, I'm getting damn close. And Peter Falk leaned over, squeezed his fingers together, goes, I think you're there, Charlie. <laughs> you know, so yeah. that's what Charlie meant for me. He, he, you know, I don't know how he did it. I did a play very early on. And there was a television, uh, his name was Stuart. He was on Channel 5. I forget. Anyway, he said it was, I was the worst actor you ever seen. I couldn't write. I couldn't. And Charlie had a transcript because this was TV. I don't know how he got the written word. But he went out of his way to get it. And then the Daily News came out and says, there's a new Brando on the American stage who writes like O'Neill. They were both at the same performance. Huh. And Charlie took the bad review, crumbled it up, threw it at me and said, you ain't that bad. Then he took the good review, crumbled it up and threw it at me and said, you ain't that good. (laughs) So, and that was early on. And I said, you know, he goes, that's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. What did he think it was about? It was about what is your best performance? It's the next one. The next one. Just. It's a process. You just keep working on it. I'm a better actor now than I was 30 years ago, but I can't necessarily play the same parts. So I got to apply what I know to these newer parts, you know? How long do you hold on to a good performance? How long do you reminisce about it? Do you find that's dangerous to kind of I like the stories that come out of them. Okay. Yeah. 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 I just had... Uh, Wendy Malik and I, we started a Durango Play Festival. And I just, we got Richard Kind to come. Richard's a pisser. He's a great guy, great actor. Oh, incredible. Actor. People give him credit for it. But we're walking down the street in Durango. 
me, him, Ray Abruzzo from The Sopranos, Wendy Malick. And some lady yells out, oh, I loved you on the Wonder Years. And I waved. And we turn the corner, and a different lady runs around. And Richard Kind has his arm on my shoulder. And she says to Richard Kind, you are wonderful in The Wonder Years. They cracked up laughing. I don't know why I did it, but I didn't crack a smile. I said, wasn't he terrific? <laughs> and Richard Kind loves telling that story. You know, but so it's always, you know, who would think you'd get a great story like that out of going to Durango to work on a play for a week? When was that? When did you guys do Durango? Oh, we do it every year in June. Oh, you do? Yeah. This was about our, we missed one year because of COVID. So. Do you do you what plays do you do? Is it new the same plays. one? It's always a new play. Yeah, there's usually two from local or Colorado, and okay. then we bring two. And last year uh, we did a play by uh, William Luddle, who, if you know the name at all, he's a very famous director of uh, soap operas, but he writes also. Okay. And uh, I said to Brendan Burke, who runs Shadowlands. Why don't you come down and direct it? But if you can't go at the last minute, I'll back you up. And then I told Richard Klein, if you can't go at the last minute, I'll back you up. So don't worry about getting a job. Said the same thing to Ray Abruzzo. None of those bastards got a job. So I ended up reading stage directions for a week. <laughs> so I said, I was counting on one of you, you know. But we had a lot of laughs. And I loved the stories. I loved hearing Charlie. And he, he used to love to come to the Players Club here. And they would tell stories. And I met James Cagney here. And, and I know why Charlie brought me, because I was the audience. So he could hear the same stories over again. Yeah. Let's talk about what's coming up for you. So I'm coming to see you next Tuesday night. Yeah, we're doing a reading series here, one a month. Hopefully it will be more. Now, by the way, I forgot to say, with Durango, with this reading series, is this still Playwright Kitchen? No, no, or, or, they're all what, different. Okay. Yeah, they're all different. Is, is it Okay, it's just one-off yeah. productions kind of thing. Playwright's Kitchen was Patrick Kaufman Entertainment, and uh, Tom Patchett was the man who created ALF. Oh, okay. Wow. So he gave me the between a Bronx tale and that and how much they would spend on 99 seat production. I said, you're wasting your money. Huh. So he wanted to find writers. And I said, let's do a reading. It'll be good PR. You can write it off. And, uh, you know, and then we got the last five years we were at the Coronet Theater where Deborah Del Pret had bought a 300 seat house. And uh, we paid no rent. So we had a little office, and a lot of times the actors, I remember Bruce Davison, he would come in every December and steal the December phone bill, and he paid it. And Joe Montaigne, you would, I, he'd, he, we'd have to get Xerox paper, you know, and he would always grab that. So, and Charlie Durning would always pick up something. So it was actors supporting theater. We never charged admission, and we never signed anything with a writer, and that's why equity left us alone. So we didn't deal with any of the unions. We were not really a group. We were just actors trying to get writers' jobs. Were you always sold out? Were you always uh, there was no. It was free. So was I mean, but was it packed? Was it always a always, packed audience? Always. We we would beg the writers, don't let the press know or anybody know who's reading your play. 
because if they say, oh, Carol O'Connor's reading tonight, the thing would be packed. It would all, uh, you know, uh, all in the family uh, fans. But how did you get the word out? How did, I mean, I'll say- We after, didn't after, have to. But after time, people knew about it. But how did it, but initially, were you, were you packed from day one? They, the very first play we read was picked by Joe Montaigne, directed by Joe Montaigne, it was starring Gene Smart. Huh. And we were in 99-seat theater. I think we had like 80 people. The next one was something I wrote that Charles Durning read that Joe directed. And uh, that was the 100 seats. And we did that, but we only do it one a month. And then this, after six months, we did two a month. And after one year, and then that's where we went. We had to get out of there because we had did, did you do? I mean, did you do any advertising ever? Was it always just... Never. You didn't even have to do a poster. I mean, it was no. just... People just knew show up on a Monday night. No, and people say, where did you get the plays? And I'll tell you, this was a mistake. Charlie told us, go to the Dramatist Guild. They have a newsletter and put in, we're going to do readings of new plays. Well, I wrote it, but I didn't write less than five characters. I didn't write a type. We would get over 500 submissions a year. And, of course, you can't read through them all. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and what I'm not going to, if John Ritter says, Dan, I found a play, I'm not going to say no. I'm going to say, here's our calendar. Pick what date you want. How many of the plays were from your selection process and how many were brought to you? I'd say after we get started, about half were brought to it. Like Bobby Moresco. He has the actor's gym, it's called. Oh, yeah, sure. The first reading in September was always Bobby Moresco. I never read it. Bobby, that's your night. Bring in what you want. You want me to get you a celebrity? Let me know. You know, uh, writers like Richie Vettieri had the first week in November. Either he brought something he wrote or he would bring something, uh, one of his students, because wow. he told it right. Wow. Because we didn't want one, that's what we learned from Joe Papp. We didn't want one person picking plays. You can't do that. You got everything, you know, what might work for me might not work for you. Right now, we're in this era of where people are picking plays based on a cause. You know, again, young women of diversity, young black writers. Well, that's all well and good, but it, it, the words on the page, you better be good or you're not helping anybody. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, Charlie would always say the worst night of your life is sitting through a bad play. <laughs> the, yeah. the best night of your life is sitting through a great play that you will remember for the rest of your life. 100%. You go to Hamilton and you're going to know scenes and songs and chorus line, championship season when I saw it with Charlie. Never saw another production of it that was came near what they did. Wow. Josh said, yeah, because we all really hated each other. <laughs> really? Yeah, he said, nobody got along. Did Charlie have trouble memorizing lines? No, not till the end. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. All right. He was... Jack was 87 and Charlie was 86 and they were doing a play. Three years later, when they passed, Jack was 90 and in a wheelchair. And Charlie really had dementia bad. He didn't know where he was. So in those three years, they really went. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, I totally end-runned what we were going to say. So we got the reading coming up on Tuesday, but then... What's happening in March? In March, Tell everybody the, about the play, play I wrote, we did it up at Shadowland, <clears throat> and we did it in the Berkshires. We got rave reviews, even from the Boston Globe, which surprised me because they said, oh, she hates everything. Huh. 
and um, we're going to try to do it here in New York. Jody Long and I. Jody is uh, she played my wife on uh, Sullivan and Son, and she is the president of SAG Hollywood, and uh, she's terrific. It's basically two comedy writers with dementia, huh. so each day they meet. They don't remember the day before, and they write comedy and fall in love. I told you the whole play. Wow. <laughs> but it's it's very, there's some really big yucks, laughs, but bring a hanky with you. So, Do you like that? Do you like the dramedy, the, that split? Is that a safe? Is that why I love the one years. You know? yeah. I mean, no act, actor likes to hang his hat on one hook, but if you had to, one year is a pretty good hook. Yeah, it is. Yes, Pretty it classy. is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love when we would have them. Some we do something that was hysterically funny, but at the end of the show, there was a little tear in your eye. You know, it's the best way to prep you for the tears, right? Yeah, yeah right? tease you up. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, Bob Rush uh, was the head writer. Um, the people who created it left after eighteen shows, but the <clears throat> we did one hundred and thirty. All the rest of the shows, Bob Rush was the head writer, and we never shot a white page we'd get a script sometimes i'd read and go this this one ain't gonna work but by time bob rewrote things they were always good i remember we did one about a pimple i said this ain't ever gonna work you know a young kid with acne has a pimple fred savage yeah yeah <laughs> you wouldn't believe the fan mail when that was over by time it was over every kid out yeah. there that had acne was writing letters to the one years thank you that takes a lot of work. Bob was a hell of a writer. He's he's come to the play. He came to the play up in the Berkshires. He's going to come again when we open. So. And when do you open? March? Right now, the first week of March. We'll see. <laughs> if people, um, we should do the proper uh, uh, capitalist shout outs now. If people want to know more about the play, if they want to come see the play, if they want to know what you're up to, where should they go? They should go to justanotherday.theater. Justanotherday.theater. That's our website. The dates will be there. Right now, you can read the reviews from out of town. Um, there's even a video. You can watch a trailer. It's a very simple play, two-hander. It's a third character, but it's off stage. It never comes on. Okay. Well, we're going to have it in the show notes, too, so people can sp- scroll down the show notes, and you can see the the link there. Dan, yeah, this one more thing. It's yeah. also written to be done like love letters. Two actors can do it. And we I did that so if the play works, if you can get two celebrities to go to your theater and read it for a fundraiser, it's a way for the older actors to with just one or two rehearsals yeah. get back on stage for a night or two and help regional theaters raise their money. So. You every every artistic move you make, it seems like you have a producer's mindset of thinking about the betterment of theater, helping out friends, giving people work. Like there's always seems like there's an ulterior altruistic motive behind a lot of the stuff that you've done. Well, Am I crazy? You no, I I appreciate you saying that, but again, it's because I I'm saying it's because of Charles Durney, and Charles Durney would tell you that was because of Joe Pat. Joe Papp, yeah. Joe Papp didn't love the public theater. He loved theater. You know, and he knows that theater is our oral history. 
And once we do away with that, once we put it into AI machines, or once we don't care about the written word anymore, the memory of our culture will be gone. There will be no memory of culture. It'll just be one big bitch session after another or one big special effect. You know, theater is supposed to promote thought. Yes. It's about ideas. It's been over two hours. You're the fucking coolest. (laughs) Dude, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Dan Loria's profile in Havoc. Um. As I said, I mean, it was an amazing time talking to Dan, uh, and I, I'm happy to say that, uh, you know, we've continued having some conversations since this episode aired, and it's, you know, it's just great talking with him. He's just such a good dude, and um, it's been interesting. I think he's been in showbiz, you know, exclusively for so long that um, there's a part of him that is an actor, you know, in his persona. And if anybody knows actors, it's that they come with a lot of political opinions and <laughs> it comes to talking. But, you know, Dan's never lost that Marine inside him um, and kind of getting an understanding of, you know, the way the military's changed, the way the cultures, the military culture has changed, the way the wars have changed. Um, you know, it's been interesting as a GWAP veteran to talk to the Vietnam era veteran and learn how things were different and you get a taste of that in in our conversation obviously i mean i as you guys could tell i kept pushing him to talk about you know some of the things that we as gwat veterans kind of are refrains that we come back to you know if you didn't see combat and you were an infantryman you know or even if you weren't infantry and you didn't see combat you know what that means and and all that and as you could tell dan was kind of nonplussed by that that wasn't his concern he was from a generation where everyone was serving and you know it wasn't it didn't loom quite as large and have the same significance in many respects and what he was proud about the nature of the service that he was proud about is an interesting i mean that civil rights you know issues uh you know that's really interesting that that's what he was primarily preoccupied with um yeah, just interesting. Interesting contrast in the different generations of warfighters that have come through this country in the last 50 or so years. Anyway, it's a blast talking to him, and uh, you know, more to come. Let's see. Dan does have his play. I just want to foot stomp that. You know, his play is coming out in March. If you're in and around the New York City area, um, check the show notes for all the details on getting tickets to see his show. Um, he is, I, I've been to see a reading with him on stage since this episode aired and, uh, he's a blast to watch on stage. Uh, so relaxed and so, um, natural and funny. Um, so if you get a chance to come to the city and see him, I would highly encourage it. Okay. We started off this episode by thanking Second Mission Foundation. I want to take a second to thank this episode's other sponsor, my own Veterans Repertory Theater, Vet Rep. For those of you that don't know, and I'm not sure why you wouldn't know, but if you don't, it is a tax-exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization which selects, develops, and produces 
veteran playwrights, and artists through live theater and immersive art performances. More than telling only war stories or focusing only on art therapy, VetRep delivers to audiences intimate, impactful performances as whimsical, hilarious, absurdist, and jarring as the veteran community that created them. For everything you want to know about Veterans Repertory Theater, go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. And while you're there, what I would suggest you do is scroll a little bit down the homepage. You'll see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog, which also doubles as our mailing list. When you do that, you will get in your email inbox every single day a little snippet of veteran writing, usually poetry, fiction, or creative nonfiction, followed by a bunch of shameless plugs for all the stuff we're doing at any given point in time. To be fair, right now, it's not a whole lot of public-facing stuff. We are incredibly busy, but it's nothing we can talk about yet. But we will let you know as stuff comes up. And even when we're slow, we're still doing a lot. So we'll have links to shows like this and maybe a couple other things. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, check it out at vetrep.org, vetrep org vetrep.org. Okay, I need to thank Mike Neal for putting this episode together. And I need to thank Dan Loria for taking the time to talk with me. I should also thank the players for being just an outstanding site to record these shows. Always so gracious and welcoming and uh, no better place to make an artist feel like they're coming home than the players. Okay. On behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. Havoc.